Welcome to Japanimation Station, an anime podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here once again to dive into the wild and wacky world of anime this week on the show. We are continuing our journey through uh, Kata no Kyokai, or the Garden of Sinners, for our second season. Uh, UFO Table Moon Works, we're looking at all the UFO Table adaptations of Type Moon uh, material. We have already covered the first four movies in our first two episodes, and I saw fit because this is the longest movie we've covered so far. It's one of the longest of all the films, and it is widely regarded as the best of the movies. I thought, let us make sure that I, and I have seen this movie before. I was like, we should make this its own episode. Jonathan, you have now seen uh, Paradox Spiral, the fifth Kata no Kyokai movie. Do you think I made the right choice? Uh, God, yes, I have absolutely no idea how we would have fit this into one episode. Like, fit this into with other movies, just like, it's too uh-huh. big, it is too much of its own thing. It is one of the best movies I have ever seen. Um, we are recording this in November of 2022, and I recently put out a list of, the first time I've ever done this, of the top 100 movies of all time, according to me, just like using my whatever professional acumen I have, what I would call the 100 best. Not necessarily my favorite, but best. Um, And you can go find that on jonathanlack.com or elsewhere. But I will say, if I had seen this movie before making that list, this would have been in, at a minimum, serious contention for that top 100. It is that kind of good. And I haven't even seen the rest of The Garden of Sinners. Um, Honestly, this is so good that if the series ended here, I'd be like, that was a great experience. I don't need any more. It's that fucking great. Um, This is a fucking landmark of animation, I I think it is fair to say. Yeah, I mean, I've obviously seen the movie before, um, but rewatching it last night, I was completely bowled over by it again, even knowing what the movie is. Um, But I think partially because it's my first time rewatching it like I have a lot more experience with like the type moon stuff in general. So this movie gets into a lot more of the um, it gets into like it, it sort of flirts with the metaphysics of the Nasuverse more heavily. Um, and it gets into stuff. we have some proper nouns we'll talk about in this episode. That'll be fun to get into. <laughs> uh, that will be important when you get to fate as well. Um, so as I think some of that stuff allowed me to see other sides of the movie and how it fits into a bigger picture with the rest of type moon. But I think there's also, 
I, I had kind of forgotten just how intricate the movie is in its structure, in its design, and how thoroughly it it explores its core themes of like duality, of like of that kind of yin and yang concept that is here, like a motif that is in all of Kata no Kyokai, um, and like boundaries and limits and those things that are motifs we get through the whole series. But this movie takes all those ideas and isn't just exploring it in the narrative, it's exploring it through the, the structure of the film itself. And one thing that was interesting is that it, like this movie does as a movie, a lot of things that the book does in its first chapter through literature, this finds a way to replicate that cinematically. I mean, I think is even more successful as an artistic project in exploring those ideas and expressing them um, through, it's, in this case, cinematic language. So yeah, I think you're 100% right that this would be easily in contention for, especially on a craftsmanship level, um, one of the best movies ever made because it is doing things cinematically and using that to reinforce its narrative uh, that is truly remarkable. I think particularly in editing, I think there's a lot to talk about yeah. here. This is, I'm curious if you have any thoughts. Uh, this is the most intricate piece of editing I've ever seen in animation. Yes. I can't immediately think of another animated work that has this intricate, an editorial structure. And I would definitely put this movie for me up there with like, the Soviet masterworks like, you know, Battleship Potemkin and Man with a Movie Camera, kind of the early editorial masterworks, uh, Thelma Schoonmaker on Raging Bull, the Martin Scorsese movie, um, Godfather 2, uh, uh, King Who's Reigning in the Mountain. Uh, no, it's Legend in the Mountain. There's got two mountain movies, but Legend in the Mountain is the one where the woman is playing the drum and that is doing these like editorial things. And just like the movies that I kind of hold in high regard is like the best examples of like intricate editing for a fucking purpose and this movie has that in spades to the degree that one thought I had watching this movie throughout was this is so cinematic and cinematic in like editing is one of the most cinematic pieces mm -hmm. of cinema right and it is so that it is so visual there are whole scenes in this that are so purely visual and auditorial and editorial that I was like how does this exist in book form? I'm really curious what this was as a light novel and what UFO Table is adding to it, what they're changing. Um, because I would not have, if I didn't know ahead of time, I wouldn't guess that this was based on a book or pre-existing material. It's too cinematic and, and its own thing, you know? Yeah, and, and fortunately I haven't had the time to get all the way through to this part in the book yet. I did pick up the book again, but I'm only partway through um, chapter four because it takes me a very long time to read things Japanese. <laughs> um, and this is easily by far the longest of the chapters. Is In my digital version, which the page numbers don't matter because it's digital, so like the font changes, and I read with comically large font in Japanese because it's impossible for me to read kanji otherwise. But this is like 500 pages, um, and the next longest chapter is chapter 7, which is 300 pages. Most of the chapters are like 100 pages. So this is... This is the bulk of the book. It is almost the entire second quote-unquote book, if you split it out into the three books that were released. Um, it is chapter four, which is like 80 pages in uh, with my font, and it is this, which is like 500. Um, so it is by far the most substantial piece in the literature, and I, I kind of thumbed through it, digitally speaking, um, because I had the same thought as you of like, what the fuck is this in the book? I think what's interesting is just glancing through it, obviously can't like speak to it in detail. A lot of the stuff they're doing cinematically is not necessarily there um, so much in the book version, at least from what I could tell. Um, obviously some of the structural stuff, like the three large parts of the movie, there's kind of, it's split into three parts, the 
opening section with like Tomoe and Shiki. Then there's a big middle section that's mostly Kokuto and Toko. And then there's a final section where um, it like Kokuto and Tomoe intersect and then it all comes together to the home stretch. That structure is very much in the book. Um, some of the like kind of chronological stuff seems to be there, but it is not as far as I could tell doing anything to try to um, create that really complex sense of disorientation and mirroring of scenes together and all of that. Um, it's not necessarily trying to do that as much. And so I think part of what this movie is doing is looking at some of the stylistic things that other chapters, particularly chapter one in the book did, that the movie version abandoned because I don't think it would have worked to do the first movie that way. Um, and it's saying, how do we, because all of the motifs and the themes and the ideas are consistent across all of Kadoto Kyokai, there's no reason why you couldn't translate and take some of those ideas and put them in this section of the story that fits better for the way the movies work. And that's what this feels like to me. They said, let's take those experimental ideas and how you mix up the chronology. You throw scenes together and juxtapose scenes in complex ways that disorient the viewer, but also give them like this ability through that juxtaposition to start putting different kind of pieces together and have that match the theme, the thematic elements of the story. Let's take all of those ideas and move that into movie five and match that in movie five. That also goes deeper into the yin yang motif that is there throughout the rest of the piece, but is kind of most prominent here. And that's to me, again, just having glanced through the book and not read the whole sequence, um, that's what it feels like it is doing as a piece of adaptation. And I think it's really cool that they're thinking about how you adapt the full scope of the books, but move and alter things and use those adaptational choices where they most apply for a movie version rather than where they applied best in the book version. That's really interesting to me, and that makes a lot of sense and speaks to, you know, just how smart an adaptation this is. Another thing I was thinking is that, we talked a lot about this in the previous episode, that when you get to the end of part four of the, the Hollow Shrine, the fourth film, you feel like, okay, the table is set, we've been out of order so far, it's been confusing in a good way, but confusing, and now, like, not everything makes sense, obviously. I don't think anything in this world will ever fully make sense, because that's yes. not the point. But you do feel like, okay, I know who Toko is. I know Kokto and Shiki's relationship as well as, like, they know it, frankly. Um, and I know sort of the general chronology of this thing, what the general, like, kind of structure of this story is. I feel like we're on sort of solid footing and the table is set and now we're going to move into the next phase of the story. And it feels like this film, Paradox Spiral, is so intricately designed to zig where you expect it to zag. Instead of yes. sort of taking that, we've set the table, and now we're going to go straight forward from there, they don't go straight forward at all. The first 45 minutes of this movie, the first act, Tomoe is 100% the protagonist, and Shiki mm -hmm. is there, but you're not in Shiki's POV, you know? And with all the stuff that is being done out of chronology, with the very fast montages, with the crazy editing, you are very much thrown for a loop. This was, I think, by far the most challenging of the movies so far. Yes. And I don't mean challenge, I mean challenging in a good way. Like, you are on your toes, actively thinking. For me, knowing we were doing a review of this, it's a two-hour movie. It probably took me three hours to get through, just taking notes and pausing and rewinding and getting screenshots and taking dialogue down and things like that um, because I wanted to have my head around it if I'm going to get on a podcast and talk about it. And all of the other ones have had challenges here and there. But I think I was maybe expecting a bigger version of what we got in the third film, Remaining Sense of Pain, which is the most straightforward of the episodes so far. It's the one that is the most clearly like case of the week, 
beginning to end. It's not straightforward by the standards of any other <laughs> work of yes. art, but by the standards of Kara no Kyokai, relatively straightforward. Uh, this is not that at all. I mean, the I mean, a whole year passes in the background in this movie, and you know things kind of shift in the background, and we're introduced to an entire other side of the world we did not know exist with Toko and her magic friends, who are not really friends anymore, and all of that stuff. I mean, it could not throw more at the viewer if it tried and that is part of what is so dizzyingly brilliant about it yeah um it is something where like so we're recording this podcast uh in the evening normally we record in the afternoons and i and i watched the movie as i normally do when we do movies i watched it the night before we do the podcast and i kind of wish i just watched it earlier today because i feel like i lost my whole day today because the only thing i've been doing is thinking about this movie um, because I was like, I, cause it's like all bottled up and I needed to do a podcast on it. I'm like, fuck it. What the fuck did I even do today? All I did was sit around and think about Paradox Spiral because it does, there's something so kind of hypnotizing and, uh, mesmerizing about this movie. And I think it, it has such a complexity to its themes and the kind of motif work it does, um, is kind of almost, I think of them almost more as motifs because it is these like recurring complex symbols um, and ideas that build and evolve on one another. Um, and there's so much of that in this movie, and particularly the middle sequence to me is the most complex with Kokto, where it is these this incredibly intricate series of interlocking scenes where it is there are multiple similar scenes that have happened in this period of time that you're experiencing, but you're experiencing them out of order. And there's like, you know how they, in movies, I don't know if this is the terminology you film people use, but in movies you've got like interscene cutting and interesting cutting, right? Is how I would refer to it, like cutting between scenes and cutting within scenes. We, um, we would also cut, call that like macro and micro or structural and momentary. But yes, that is a big idea in film studies. Yeah, um, and I think one of the crazy things that this movie does in that whole middle stretch is it completely blurs the line between what is cutting within this scene and what is cutting to a different scene? Because you have multiple versions of basically the same scene or similar scenes happening, um, like Toko and Kokto visit the lobby of the mansion multiple times. Uh, Kokto goes to Shiki's uh, house and tries the door and finds it locked multiple times. Like they have a conversation with Alba, Cornelius Alba, multiple times. Um, there's lots of different sequences that there are, like conversations they have in the office there are multiple versions of those scenes that have happened over the course of time that this movie takes place. And it will cut within a scene to a moment that is from one of those other versions of the scene. And they will do that with like no warning. Uh, it will happen so rapidly. It will ha happen multiple times within a scene. And there is something so um, powerful about that to me. And I, the one thing I was curious about it, Jonathan, is there, have you ever seen anything else that does this kind of thing that that really experiments with that how do you blur the lines between are you looking even at the same scene anymore or are you looking at a similar scene taking place but taking place in a different time frame with a different context and you're moving fluidly one between the other in the same way one would normally cut to different shots within the same sequence i'd have to think on that i mean the closest i would say is like true avant-garde film like mm -hmm. stuff like, you know, I think you could make an argument for like Maya Darren's Meshes in the Afternoon or At Land, but those are, they're narrative, but they're very oblique. So they don't have the same sense of there being a continuity in the way this is 
a continuity, yes. but it is being presented discontinuously. To the degree that this movie does it, and with the sheer degree of, I want to use the word playfulness, and maybe that feels wrong for something this dark, but like it is editorially playful. Um, mm-hmm. It's very structured, but it's you know also very open and and willing to experiment with that. Yeah, no, I have trouble thinking what else would do that that fluidly. Um, you know, there are. Uh, in sort of the early days of like institutionalized film studies in like the 60s and 70s you would sometimes get these monographs that people would write a monograph just means a book on one subject about like taking often it would be like the soviet masterworks like battleship potemkin and you would take potemkin and you would go shot by shot just to break down the editing and that's a whole book going through the basic editorial pattern of that movie it's very rewarding and i've often thought uh, about different movies. Man, I would love to do that with this movie or this movie. Um, I've often thought about that with Yoshiyuki Tomino. I think, like, Reconquista mm-hmm. in G would probably be, before seeing this, I would say the most interesting editing I've ever seen in anime. Um, but that is still fundamentally continuity editing. This is something else. I would love if I had, like, the time and money, like, funding, to do the book just on the editing of this movie because yes. I feel like that would be a fascinating exercise because it's exactly what you're talking about. You wouldn't just be talking about the relationships between shots, but you would be saying, like, okay, the three shots in this cut, like, they belong to three different periods that are actually relating in this way, but the, one of the main languages this movie uses graphic matches. So it's constantly drawing between, like, you know, someone will open a a door this is a frequent cut in this movie someone will open a door to an apartment and then like another door like a car door will open and those are not continuous in the sense of continuity editing but they have a graphic match between them there's all sorts of stuff that like it is blending a lot of different major styles of editing yeah and it takes really powerful advantage of like some things that animation can do very trivially that live action would struggle with which is being able to replicate exact shots yes exactly Right. So like particularly unless you're on like a hyper controlled set in live action it is very difficult to reproduce the exact same shot at a different point in time because a person's hair is going to look different. Their costume will be in a slightly different position. If you're outside, the time of day changes like, you know, things in the background will change without your control. Um, Whereas with animation, you can just layer different elements onto the exact same shot. Um, And that's one of the things this movie uses to like laser precision is by reusing what is like oftentimes 95% the exact same shot you saw five minutes ago in a similar scene. Um, But like adding in one other element like, oh, in this shot, Kokto is lying on the ground in the background and there's the blood on the wall. And then it will cut to a wide shot and he's not there anymore. You're going to find out in 10 minutes. Why was he there in this shot that you were seeing a different version of the same scene? Um, in that one shot that was giving you, the, again, this kind of duality thing that you get throughout the whole movie. Um, and that's kind of stuff that animation can really do effectively because you can just reuse this exact same shot and then add in this element later or add in um, like the different cars that are parking outside and stuff like that at the end of the movie. There, You can very easily reuse those same shots. I think that's one thing that I really love about the movie is it feels so efficient in how it goes about its very complex structural design. Yes, there there are whole parts of the first act of this movie with the Tomoe part where they literally have like the cell layer. I, it's, today they don't use cells, but you know what I mean. The like yeah. character animation layer stay the same, and then they take out the background and put another background in. Yes. So you have like Shiki moving. There isn't a cut, but Shiki is now in a different place in time, and they do stuff like that. It's fascinating. Um, yeah, it's it's incredible. 
you know, I think the rhythms of this movie feel much more like music to me than they do film mm-hmm. or other or literature or other things that I think of as like straightforwardly narrative, even in comparison to the other Karno Kyokai films. Like, and, and when I say that, like you earlier said, you know, maybe motif is a better word to use than theme. I'm looking at my notes. My first note in my notes here, Sean, is motif of turning keys. And like, uh-huh. that's something you see a lot. And I do think the word motif is good because that is a word that comes to us from music primarily. And I I think when you think of music and you think of themes and motifs in music, you know, there are some cases like, you know, sort of the Wagnerian tradition that kind of survives in film scoring where themes do kind of have a one-to-one connection to an idea. Like every time, you know, you hear the ring theme in Howard Shore's Lord of the Rings, this implies Sauron and the evil and that sort of thing. Uh, But in a lot of music, you know, themes and motifs exist and they don't necessarily have like the composer wrote down, okay, this theme means this, and every time I use it, I'm developing this specific idea. It's a lot more emotive than that, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this movie is doing that, where you could definitely put into words a lot of what it's doing with duality and yin-yang and that, but I also think it's not necessarily inviting that. I think it's much more interested in kind of the musicality of these ideas being put together, and I think the final sequence of the movie, which really goes hard in on this duality between Tomoe and Shiki, is the best example of that of like I could break down what that means shot by shot and maybe we will but like it so gets the idea across visually and emotionally that you feel the idea you don't have to verbalize it yeah I'm 100% with you because I think like the things I would compare to is either yeah music or it makes me feel like it reminds me of poetry um more than it does like a novelistic structure where the, there's something about the way it is reusing these like scenes or matching scenes in this way that thinks that feels like it's cinematic rhyming, right? You're using this sort of structure of similarity to juxtapose different things or remind you and bring up similar ideas that have existed somewhere else in this piece through the use of this like recurring similarity. And that's something that poets do is will use is they'll use rhyming or other kinds of literary like, aesthetic structures of literature to connect ideas across a whole piece um, and, you know, use that kind of repetition or here we're using this similar kind of alliteration, whatever it is. Um, And I think there's something about that that I feel in this movie as well, that it is very resistant to you trying to collapse all of its like ideas and meaning into a thing into a single statement or a single interpretation. Like, and obviously we will like talk about our various interpretations and what it made us feel and stuff. Cause it, it, I think it wants you to explore those ideas, but I think this is as is true of most of Nasu's stuff. And I think particularly true of Kata no Kyokai in general is very resistant to you trying to collapse all of its like ideas into a single like thing, a statement, a, a statement of intent or a single thematic project. You know, uh, it's, it's a lot more sort of, complex than that and it's a lot more kind of um like it's a lot more fluid than that than than something that you can just kind of compress down to a single idea um there's something about that stylistically that's particularly about this movie is impressive to me because it is so hard to get your head around it it is so hard to try to like kind of find solid footing throughout the whole middle section of the movie not in a way that's bad but in a way that's like it feels like you're drowning in the film in a very effective way yeah, there's the the poetry example makes me think of, you know, there are, if you look at like the writings of Sergei, Eisen, Sergei Eisenstein, the Soviet filmmaker who made Potemkin and Strike, 
uh, October and kind of is the most notable kind of proponent of montage editing, Soviet montage editing, the, you know, he would sometimes have the idea of like, you will, you know, shots can be, you should use shots as like building blocks and come back to them. And like, in a, in that mm-hmm. kind of poetic sense, almost like you're building a vocabulary with the camera that you then construct in the editing. And this movie is fundamentally yes. montage editing. It is fundamentally constructivist editing. Um, when I use the word, I when I teach film theory, I, I have a slide for my students and I go through, the word montage in film studies is confusing because it has three broad meanings. It is just the word for editing in most of the world because that's the French word for editing uh, and France and America are kind of the two countries where cinema originates and then goes out through the world. Uh, there is the modern sense of montage of like Rocky running up the Philadelphia steps where you compress time in one place and you have music over it. But then there is the Soviet montage, which is the idea that shots on their own don't have meaning. It's all about the relations between the shots and the relations between the shots create bigger ideas than the shots on their own, um, usually in a sort of either not continuity editing purpose or a hyper continuity editing purpose of, you know, the edits are going to convey an idea bigger than just what you see in the images. And this movie is doing that through this deconstruction of time, right? Um, And so it is fundamentally that kind of project, although not for like a stridently political didactic means as you would get in Potemkin or something. Yeah, because that's the other side of this movie that's, like, fantastic, is that it is doing all this, like, insane structural shit that, like, if you're a film nerd is going to light your goddamn brain on fire because you're like, (laughs) oh, my God, the editing of this fucking movie. Um, But then also it's like you get sick wizard fights and you get, like, what is kind of, to me, the prototype of the big Kimetsu no Yaiba action scenes, you know, in terms of yes. the table stuff we've seen that obviously they will continue to develop this. Um, I realized when I was like preparing some stuff for this podcast um, that like, because we're doing all the Kata no Kyokai stuff together, uh, you know, we're doing it slightly out of sequence because movie eight was made after Fate Zero, but I, it would be tedious to try to separate those. But we're going to get to see the movie eight okay, we get these experimental, like, particularly here, these action 3D shots that you get, two big sequences with Shiki in this movie that do some of that camera stuff. And then in movie eight, you will see, oh, how quickly they evolve those techniques into what is much more recognizably what you get in Kimetsu no Yaiba. Um, but you get that all that here too. And it's got some incredible action stuff. And it's got, you know, fucking gore up the wazoo. I had kind of forgotten about how gory this movie is in the home this stretch. Is a like, bloody I, movie. <laughs> I remembered some of it, but some of the details uh, had been lost on me over time. Um, So it it still has like this kind of more crowd pleaser element to it as well. Um, You know, and I think it's that's kind of the magic of a lot of Nasu stuff to me is that it can balance this like very heady ideas, very like complex structural things, um, very intricate, weird themes that make you kind of question um, tropes and things like that and then at the same time you get like oh let's this is like the coolest sword fight you have ever seen in anything ever um or like in terms of the visual novel stuff even if you cut out like the ufa table contribution it's like the action and how it's described and implemented in the light novels for Kadano kyokai or um like the fight between uh fujino and shiki at the end of Kadano kyokai uh, volume three is fucking awesome in the book um, but then also in the visual novel, the action sequence are, sequences are amazing in Fate's Day Night. So it's like it's able to, I think, serve both camps really effectively um, that you can just get your sort of fun action, crazy anime storyline stuff. But then also it activates this sort of other part of your brain as well if you're into that. Um, that's part of like the magic of these kinds of uh, projects to me. 
Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up the action stuff because this is as impressive as episodes one through four of this sh- um, film series are. This movie feels like it is a leap. Like it is like yes. there is there are like good like proto UFO table stuff in those first four that are very impressive. And especially for the time they came out in. Holy shit. And then you get to this and like there are several sequences I wrote about in my notes, but there is one near the end where the camera just goes in with Shiki as she is moving around fighting the puppets. And they are able to maintain the, like, planar anime sense of the characters and the backgrounds. There isn't, like, an obvious, this thing over here has become CGI. It just feels like the camera somehow came off of the mount that it would be in for an animation, like, setup and just went into the animation and flew around inside it. And it boggles my mind today, and I've seen them do even more complex versions of this, but there's something about seeing it in sequence, one, two, three, four, and now five, seeing them just snap that into focus, and you just feel like you can see, you know, moments like, you know, Rengoku's big rush at the end of, you know, Mugen Train, or some of the stuff in the final episodes of season two of Kimetsu no Yaiba, and it's like, you can just draw a straight line from here to there. Yes, because it is specifically some of the action stuff um, at the end of the first part of the Shiki part, which is where you get the big like action scene of her fighting all the zombies. And then the end of the movie, which is her um, fighting the character who I'm going to keep on almost calling uh, Kotomine because that's the very similar character <laughs> from Fate. Um, but it is not Kotomine, it's Soden, uh, Araya Soden. Um, her fight against him. This is where they start innovating on some of the stuff of of how much they are blending the 3D of like prototyping the shots with 3D models in a 3D program with the 3D backgrounds and then using that as reference for the 2D animators. Like this is where they start really implementing those techniques that then become like very like well-worn standards for UFO table in particular by the time we get to the modern era of animation and things that other studios are starting to do now as well. But this is where, as far as I know, I believe this is the first time they have ever done that before they prototype the entire shot in 3D first and then um, implemented the 2D stuff on top of the 3D prototype shot. And do you have like sources or like interviews that you've seen of them talking about this? Um, yeah, well, I don't have like direct things from them. It's more I have like YouTube videos that have gone in. There is some background like behind the scenes stuff where you can see the animatics for this sequence. Okay. Um, so yes. Yeah. Because this is just, yeah. this is almost, this is maybe an off podcast conversation, but like this is my, the third chapter of my dissertation or planned third chapter is about sort of, it's, it's essentially about the UFO table effect. Like there are other yeah. studios that have done it, but the full like synthesis of 3D and 2D, not just kind of the, you know, you get a lot of good like back and forth of an anime that'll have a good 3D scene and then a good primarily 3D scene, primarily 2D scene, but UFO table just creating kind of a new language by combining them. And I feel like this movie is going to feature prominently in that chapter uh-huh. of my dissertation. This is this is actually part of why we're doing this as season two. It's just because I'm coming up on writing that, and I was going to be watching all the UFO table stuff anyway, and we said, time to do it then, if I'm going to watch it anyway. So, you know, this is, this is fascinating stuff. This is stuff I'm going to be spending a lot of time researching and writing about. Yeah, and it's just, it is very fun to revisit this movie now that like you know they worked on the highest grossing movie in the history of the japanese box office and stuff you know (laughs) like um because even at the time when i originally watched these was before like the unlimited blade works anime came out you know um because i read i mean when i played fate stay night that was before the fate zero anime came out um so it's like when i originally watched these was a long time ago 
Uh, so it's like fun to see like, oh, right, man, the UFO table has has gone some fucking places and I almost kind of forget like how long I have in some version been on the journey with them. Um, because you go back to this and it's like, uh, it's really crazy to see how much of that style is there in this film. It's so funny to just think about like, you talked about this in the first episode, that Kino Konasu and Tight Moon were a little wary to let anyone else kind of have their baby after the first anime of, what was it, Nishiki? Like, or what was it? Uh, Tsukihime. Tsukihime uh, went wrong. And, and it's like, man, they couldn't have gotten... They're more of their wildest dreams realized in animation, right? And it makes sense why then, you know, UFO Table just is the go-to person for all of the big projects past that point. Because, like, man, what a turnaround from this project almost put us off anime adaptations forever. And then Kara no Kyokai, this is a landmark in the entire history of anime. Like, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, and just and just how perfectly it matches the sensibilities of the source material, right? Like the the canniness of taking some of the experimental stuff that existed in the first chapter of the book and moving that structurally here and figuring out how to translate that stuff. I mean, I was pretty disappointed in many ways when I watched the first movie because I had read the book and like was like, oh man, I mean, it's still good, but it doesn't do these all these crazy things that the book did. Um, and now all those complaints are gone. Like, I guess I, I had forgotten how thoroughly this movie does this shit. I'm like, oh, no, they were 100% right. Like, this is exactly what you needed to do. Um, you needed to keep that spirit alive. But it would have been so alienating for the movies to have tried to do something like this in the first one. It would be impossible. Like, nobody would fucking get all the way through it. Um, so saving this style and it's like, no, we've got the buy-in. People are like the characters. They're into this world. We're all the way in let's put all that crazy experimental structural stuff into also the big meaty middle chapter. Um, that is also like sort of like almost like the first climax of the series of movies. Cause in many ways, this is like wraps up a lot of like nascent story threads from the first few movies. And then we'll get movie six, which is kind of its own thing. And then movie seven, which pays off all the serial killer stuff from the second movie. Um, so this is like, structurally it's like one big climax um before you get almost like the denouement in some ways which is like the last two films um and so then moving all that stuff here it's just the sensibility to do that and the respect of the source material to be adventurous enough to do that but still pulling it from the spirit of what the books are doing like that's a team that really knows what they're doing and is really respecting the source material to the highest degree because they're respecting the source material to the highest degree isn't just we're trying to replicate it faithfully 100%. It's how do we communicate what is great about this book or whatever it is to an audience as a movie? Like that's what they're doing here. And that's what you really want in an adaptation. And that's a consistent, I mean, that's stuff we talked about a lot in the Kimetsu reviews we've done, right? Of how do they take the manga and do that? And, you know, this is, uh, adapting a visual novel is a very different challenge than adapting a, well, not, this is a light novel. Light novel, visual novel, manga, they've done it all. Um, And, you know, the the thread between all of that is taking it seriously and thoughtfully and and experimentally and adventurously in the same way Nasu's writing is experimental and adventurous. And it's just, it's super cool. It's, God, this movie... We could talk about for uh, multiple episodes. It's that kind of rich. Yes, it's like this movie demands a like five hour long YouTube video essay. You know, <laughs> like that's like this is like the one where like you watch, you're like, I'm going to watch like 10 minutes of this and then quit out. And then like half a day later, somehow you watch the whole thing. That's like what this movie wants to have. I think that's a good description. Uh, and coming next week from Japan Animation Station. Not really. Um, that would take a lot of work. 
maybe one yes, day that would take but, like a year to make yes <laughs> anyway all right um I feel like we're only now getting out of, like, the preamble of our review, but I feel like we've said a lot of very, like, in-depth things about it. Uh, maybe just as a little, um, you know, palate cleanser, I do, just because I want to mention it every week, we do get an intro claymation in this one. This yes. is another don't use your cell phone one, but this one is funny because you have the the villain of this episode come in with his, his blue hair and his magic and turn off the cell phone signal so the cat girl cannot use her cell phone anymore, that made me laugh very hard. It's a very good one. Yes, I've, I've, it's a tragedy that, you know, that Ufa Table hasn't kept doing the claymation thing. It's it's so fun going yeah. back to these and being like, oh, right, they used to do this. Um, I also love the old Ufa Table um, logo that's on these movies as well. Like, I kind of had missed that, like, weird logo also. Yeah. It's good. I just love the idea of taking the villain from this movie and have him in the playful fucking claymation sketch, given the uh-huh. truly abhorrent uh, and disturbing things he does throughout the runtime of this movie. Um, it's great. <laughs> yes. Yeah, 100%. So anyway, love that. I, I am 100% planning on cutting out all of these claymation skits and then some other stuff I'm going to find and using these to intro movies in my screenings for my film theory class next semester, which is ongoing as these are airing. So you can hold mm-hmm. me to that. Uh, I hope that's happening because i think that will be fun and confuse all my students yes but then like hopefully you have like the one student that has like seen these movies before he's like i know where this is from yes like i know i know this teacher is a massive fucking nerd and i go you win you get the chocolate factory you're teaching the class now (laughs) all right where where do you want to go next talking about paradox spiral Oh, uh, Jesus. Uh, I guess, like, for, so the movie is split into three sections, right? Yes. Um, and, it, like, literally where they're, they're like... They repeat what, if this, this title screen. Yes. Um, and it almost feels like an eye catch in a weird way. Like, obviously, these yeah. are, you know, this was a, this is a movie. This is the most movie feeling of all of these. Like, there's something weird about this where even though they are all movies, they all aired in movie theater, this is the one that feels like it's like, oh, this is Kata no Kyokai, the movie. Yeah. is almost how I feel like you could refer to it. Because I think they knew, obviously, this is the one that's 500 fucking pages. It's almost twice as long as the next longest section of the book. They knew this is the fan favorite one. They knew this is like the most popular part of the the novels. This is the biggest. It's the most fleshed out. It feels like this is like they're putting their full weight behind it. Um, And there's something here where, you know, they're building that in immediately. There's like this little prologue that you get flashes of all this crazy shit happening that's mostly set around... um, the end of the first section where Enjo Shiki gets captured, Enjo sees uh, Soden get stabbed, and there's the crazy eyeball shot that I love where his eye like goes all the way around the socket to the other end, um, which is very creepy. And then you get your opening titles, and then it gets you into this sort of Enjo Tomoe section uh, where you get a, it's like 40-something minutes of the movie where it is all from his general POV. Um, you get his, he's like effectively a new protagonist character you get only for this film. Um, and that 40 minutes or so at the beginning is all to like establish him and to start set up this kind of crazy mystery we're in. Um, and I think immediately it is incredibly striking because he has his, uh, you know, the, the thing that happens with his family that we later learn is this whole crazy thing in the mansion. Um, but you get this movie started off with a very horror vibe of him, uh, stabbing his mother to death, ripping out like the guts 
or whatever and like holding on to the guts and going kind of insane and running out of his house. And then one of my favorite shots that they have lots of these shots of you looking from the outside in at the apartment, like where the doors are. They do this both for the mansion complex and then they also do this for Shiki's mansion that she lives in. Again, I'm using the Japanese word mansion here. Um, and it's just this like static horizontal shot looking at those doors and seeing the guy trying all the doors, the homeless guy who's going to come in. And he goes across the whole frame slowly, bit by bit, until he gets to that last door that is open, comes in. And then that's when the camera comes in with him and he sees the horror of everything that happens. Like what a great, like shocking, startling kind of like, again, horror movie setup to this whole thing. It's, uh, it is deeply... <laughs> deeply distressing that is very true um yeah i think tomoe is such an interesting character immediately because it's so unclear and the movie's editing structure keeps you so on your toes of like okay he has he's experiencing two realities one of which he is sure is real and one of which he thinks is a dream but it is unclear to the viewer how much mm -hmm. he is correct in that, right? Like, he is an unreliable narrator of his own life in that sense, right? And so we have two, and it's not just two versions, they are two mutually exclusive versions, right? Yes. Because he is dead in one, and he is the killer in the other. And they are both extremely disturbing, one of which, as you say, ripping the guts out. It's literally, he has, like, her large intestine in his hands, and he's, like, holding it to his face, and it's, like, glowing, and it's, uh, it's fucked up. It's very fucked up. And, yep. you know, then we, we come out into that. And and you have previews of the stuff that's going to happen with... Uh, what's the villain's name? Sorry, Senjo? Soren. Soren. Uh, Soren, you have, like, the scenes with him um, from... We find out, like, way later in the movie uh, that are kind of, like, cut together here. And so time is all over the place. Um, I. It's kind of funny. This movie is so big. And it is... When you talk about this one feeling like a movie, part of it is just the sheer length. This is literally twice yeah. as long as the other ones. Uh, part of it is just the scope. Because it's not just twice as long. I feel like three times as much happens in it. You know? It's like mm -hmm. really complicated. Um, but so like now I'm in my mind. I don't even quite remember how he and Shiki meet. It's almost like... That's just something that sort of like we almost gloss over. But they are in each other's orbit at a certain point. You know? Yes. Well, so one thing this movie does is for this first 40 minute section, really large stretches of the movie are both storyboarded and animated by an animator named Tetsuya Takeuchi um, that he gets like a from what I could tell um, doing a little bit of like research into it, because it struck me that there are long sequences of the first 40 minutes of this movie that are visually quite distinctive from the rest of the film. I wrote and this down from the too. rest. Yeah. Yeah. Not just the rest of this film, but the rest of the other films. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is that this uh, animator, Tetsuya Takeuchi, who is like really kind of like famous in the animation community, he doesn't do a lot of like, he's, he's an animator ass animator. He's not like an animation director and stuff like that. He does key animation on a lot of stuff. Um, one thing I noticed when I looked up him up on Sakugaboru, which is a great website if you want to see like clips of animation and get some like sourcing on who did the animation and stuff like that. He does a lot of if the anime needs a really great, very detailed shot of somebody playing a musical instrument. This dude does a lot of that stuff. Like the ones <laughs> where like, oh, they're actually animating like the proper fingering on the guitar. They're not faking it. There's like a dozen clips I found on his page on this website of those kind of clips. So he's like a really, really talented, like top tier animator. And they clearly just gave him um, the authority to storyboard huge sections of um, the first 40 minutes. Um, one of those scenes being the whole sequence where um, after uh, Enjo leaves 
right? You then get the scene of him running through the streets. He's being chased by yes. his um, high school friends or whoever. In the book, it's high school friends. There's a lot more like detail about why that scene is happening in the book. This is like one of the few sections I read in kind of detail. Um, but anyways, but he's running away from them. Um, he gets cornered in this like little like kind of uh, side garage area. He fucking pokes that dude in the eye, which is really violent, and also is a thing. Another kind of of one of many, many, many sequences that are going to be mirrored, or d- there's going to be some kind of dual other version of that or motif, something that you're going to pick up again later. Um, so he stabs the kid in the eye. He then gets the shit kicked out of him, and then Shiki comes into that. And out of like it, it's all like steamed and fogged up, and she comes in and beats the shit out of those dudes, um, and helps Enjo uh, out, and he's and basically like through just like her not giving a shit about anything, ends up giving this guy like a place to stay for months at a time. Um, but that's that whole sequence has really really detailed intricate um, animation, and it's as far as I can tell, that whole sequence is just animated by Tetsuya Takeuchi and was storyboarded by him as well. So this was one of that's I'm really glad to know that because I was going to ask you about that. That is one of my first notes in my notes here. Just that the I wrote the character animation is just like a notch more impactful. It's all the animation in these movies is fluid, but there's like a level of fluidity and detail that feels like it. I, the phrase I kind of came up with was it feels like it's really emphasizing the weight of bodies in motion. So when like he puts the finger in the eye, it's not just an abstract. Oh, he poked that dude's eye out. It's like, I can feel that in my gut that he is poking that dude's yep. eye out. And I think like, and then when Shiki comes in, you also notice it because we've seen Shiki fight before. And this looks noticeably different uh and i think the way it it like it's very important that i think this is the first real action sequence of the movie because it gives you kind of a almost thesis statement visually on how it's going to treat violence the violence in this movie is very visceral and impactful and and not that violence is ever used casually in these movies but i think there's just a extra level of like kind of feeling it in the gut in this one that sets it apart Yes, um, and and uh, Takeuchi also animated the big sequence at the end of the first part, which is her fighting the zombies in the hallway that you talked sequence. about earlier. That's yeah. him. He again, he storyboarded and animated that whole thing. That um, one blows me away because it's actually, it's kind of not in the UFO table style as we've come to know it now. It's actually done in a very traditional anime sense of mm-hmm. it's a side view mounted camera or the camera like panning very slowly as Shiki's just fluidly just going through all of these guys. Uh, and then it gets more complex as it cuts past that point. But it's like, it's just, it's pure like here, go to town animator and everything else is kind of static. It's great. Yeah. And as far as I can tell, that is basically what they did. They're like, hey, man, go to town on this shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> like fucking go for it. Because uh, again, Takuji is like very well known for very intricate animation and like lots of like big battle scenes he's done. He's like done fight scenes in Naruto and stuff like that when they need to do a big fight. Um, it's that kind of a, a ringer that you pull in kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but this whole section of the movie we have. This is probably the most straightforward, which is a weird way to say it, but when it is Shiki and uh, Enjo together at home and these seemingly months, maybe like at a certain point it becomes clear it's been a year since the first episode, which chronologically happened right before this. 
And so a lot of time has is passing over this, and we have a really crazy montage. But before we get into the crazy montage, there's just some nice slow scenes of these two characters living in their little mansion apartment together. We should actually probably explain that terminology for anyone who's unfamiliar. Yeah, um, I think we mentioned it in the last episode, but um, mansion is a Japanese term that means um, for us like a condo or apartment complex, generally speaking. Um, and so when they call both the like big tower in this, they refer to his mansion as well as Shiki's uh, little uh, shitty little tiny apartment she lives in. Both of those would just be referred to as mansions which has no, well, I mean, it has a linguistic similarity to um, our word for mansion, but no definitional similarity to our word for mansion, which means like a giant house for rich people. Right, exactly. It's a, it's a very different <laughs> idea. In the subtitles I was watching, they did condo, which is probably a decent translation of it. Uh, it's the basic idea across. I think I would argue condo maybe sounds nicer in the English context than like what they're uh -huh. actually describing, because these are like for single people or small families. And in fact, it is important that Enjo's family has fallen from a house to a little mansion apartment. They are yeah. on top of each other in that space, and that is, I think, part of the idea, is that they are... they are A condo is a normal place for a family to live. This would be a little abnormal, certainly from the social strata they started in, to fall to this place. Yeah, because there's meant to be something suffocating about like yeah. these little rooms. In particular, like, the Shiki's is interesting, commented on before, that, like... Her apartment is tiny, but it almost feels big because it's so empty, which I think is like, you know, part of like the point of the effect of that set that we have now seen multiple times because we've revisited in all the present day Kodano Kyokai's. Um, it's one of my favorite locations. Uh, there's something like so effective about that little tiny room, empty room that she lives in. Um, but yeah, I think that it, there is like, a again, like lots of kind of pairings and dualities across this whole movie. That is another one of them is this empty, a weirdly spacious, small uh, apartment room that Shiki lives in versus the like clustered, claustrophobic, kind of disgusting, like you've got to get out of there um, apartment that Enjo lived in with his family. And, and Shiki, like Enjo, Enjo doesn't know this, but we know it, has fallen in a sense. Like Shiki did live yes. in what we would in America call a mansion, right? She lived in this like almost like old Japanese, you know, castle kind of setting, right, in episode two. Mm -hmm. And now she's living in this small space. And of course, it's, the, it's kind of the reverse because she is much more free in this small space than she was in that spacious house. And the opposite kind of happened to Enjo. But when he goes to Shiki's place, there is kind of a freedom and acceptance. One of my favorite details here is that um, Shiki starts buying the strawberry Haagen-Dazs, the single yes. cup Haagen-Dazs for Enjo and keeps giving it and Tomoe keeps eating them and like the, we see these comically like large trash piles of them piling up um, that like man he must have a stomach of steel to eat that many single you know surfing Haagen-Dazs strawberry ice creams but I, I was thinking about this I love this is one of I think the best examples of how the sequencing has worked in these movies because if these had been presented to us in chronological order, then the details about Shiki's relationship to that strawberry ice cream and how Kokto started doing that for her, that would have just happened in the previous episode because uh -huh. chronologically overlooking view, the first movie happened right before this one. And so it would have been something that like we just saw, but instead the strawberry ice cream thing, especially in how UFO table has laid it out in their adaptation is the first thing we ever learned about Shiki 
is her as a loner in this apartment, and one of the ways Kokto is trying to get through to her is giving her these single-serving strawberry haagen And now she turns that and starts doing that for Enjo. That, to me, like, is the brilliance of the sequencing of this thing. That is why, like... You know, chronology and continuity is is overrated because sometimes if you want to relate the actual emotions of a story, you have to do it out of order. And what I feel like in my bones hits me about this movie wouldn't hit me as hard if we had watched this in chronological order for some reason, you know? Yeah, I'm yeah, I 100% agree that we we started with this kind of like mysterious, weird, broken version of of Shiki that is so distant and alien to you in that first movie and you're trying to kind of get access to her the way that that Kokto is um and then you get all this other story and context for her to the point where you know we got episode four now we know who she is we feel like we're on very solid footing with her there's still mysteries there's still the whole serial killer thing from episode two that's not resolved but like we feel like we know who she is now and so now it feels appropriate on our journey with the character for her to then start doing for other people what Kokto has done for her. Um, and yes, I think that's like that structure absolutely is much more powerful um, because it, it is reflecting how we have experienced her as a character, not necessarily her experience as a character in that world. And our experience is more important because we're the audience. She is a fake person in a movie, you know? Um, so yeah, I think and, it is a, it, it's a very good example of what this structure is doing and what they're intentionally doing with the structure for the audience. And one of my favorite things about this movie that we haven't talked about yet is there is a very, what we would call it like a present absence in that Kokto and Shiki are mm-hmm. never on screen in this movie until the post credit scene. And the ending yeah. of the movie is the implication, the, the, end, the cut to credits moment is the implication that they're about to finally share space together. Even though narratively there are scenes in this movie where they share space together, mm-hmm. they have edited it. And this is one of my favorite tricks the movie plays. It's very obvious in the, in the second act of the movie, the sort of Cocteau-centric act, where there are multiple scenes where Shiki is technically in the scene. We know because people are referring to her. We hear the voice a couple of times. She is there, but she's never on screen. And in fact, in some scenes, like when Kokto gives her the sword, the like deconstructed sword, which we see her building with Tomoe in the first act of the movie, that is shot from her point of view and it's a first person shot. But the effect of all of this is that they are separated for all of this movie and they are not together. And again, this is this is part of the brilliance of the editing and that there are truths that you can only get to by breaking chronology and continuity is that clearly Shiki feels distant from Kokto in this movie and is realizing that she misses that connection. That's the whole kind of idea that we start to get, especially in the second half of this movie and that final moment where, you know, the, the I mean, the post-credit stinger is, is fully her accepting him into her life by asking for the key yeah. in exchange, which given the weight of keys as a motif in this movie and their connection to the idea of family is about the most intimate thing she could ask him to do. Uh, honestly, mm-hmm. like, you know, even if there were like a full sexual advance, I don't know if it would feel as intimate based on the motifs of this film. And so having this kind of like blown apart where, and they do this in the first half too, where there are scenes where we know Kokto is there, but we don't see them together. Uh, it's brilliant and it's so clever. Yes, and there's actually like one trick that they do is that in the sort of climactic sequence of the movie where Shiki has her like 
moment of enlightenment or whatever that we can talk about that, you know, when she re-arrives in the elevator with the sword and all that, and you have this big montage where she effectively experiences the whole movie in chronological order, where she has, like, put it all together. Um, we'll talk about maybe what, like, all that means. Um, but there is a sequence there. I think it's actually the sword scene where... Um, it shows you the sequence you've already seen animated before, which is the shot from her perspective. And then they do a reverse shot. Um, that is right. a new shot. So they do, they introduce a shot reverse shot thing that builds a space where even though you don't see them in the same shot, in the, the room together, literally, you are now, you have built a cinematic space where they are both together. Um, and like, that's the first time that happens in the movie. Um, and it's during that kind of epiphany sequence, however you want to describe it. Um, but yes, it is It is one of my favorite sections of shots in this movie are all of the POV shots that almost have like a like a, a, a like a Sega CD game effect to it in some places <laughs> where characters are talking to the camera. Um, or it reminds me a lot of if we ever do, well, we'll definitely one day do our, our KyoAni uh, podcast series or a season on Kyoto Animation Studios um, where they have a show called Hyoka. Uh, where there's a whole secret like storyline that is about like a student film where characters are talking into camera. There's something about those scenes that reminded me of that, of like there's something fun about anime characters talking into the camera that's so kind of weird because it's a it's a language you don't see often in live action, but you almost never see in anime. And there's something very kind of exotic about that technique being used. Absolutely. And this is something that's true in Kara no Kyokai from episode one to here is that when it does first person shots, it wants you to like keep in mind, Mm -hmm. this is a first person shot. There's another one that I love when uh, Shiki and Enjo go explore the building is you have this really striking CGI shot for them walking in first person through the space. It's kind of how Mm -hmm. we are introduced to how the spatial relations of this very weird building works. And they even do this little thing where they have the camera bouncing along with like their eye line as they're moving through the space, which of course is something you just never see in animation. That's, you know, the camera is generally in animation, very stable. Um, And so like it, it becomes embodied in that moment in a way that like in a, in a live action movie, this would be a handheld shot, you know? Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's one of those fun things of when you, of where you table being very adventurous with their sort of like the camera and feel and using the camera as a like physical prop almost because of their experience with 3d you get those kinds of shots yeah and that is one of my favorites as well um because it's just like it's trippy it's just that thing where again you've seen live action stuff do a shot like that all the time it's super common um particularly in like horror movies and stuff like that a shot like that is very very common um but in animation because it is like you have to put so much effort to do a shot like that in animation. Whereas in live action, the reason why lots of horror movies like to do a shot like that is that that's a very easy kind of shot to shoot. Um, (laughs) Whereas for anime, like you got to put a lot of effort to to reproduce that effect. Um, But um, it is very important to kind of dislodge the viewer from their expectations on the like aesthetic world you exist in, particularly for this movie, because you know, the, a huge section of the ending of the first part and then uh, the ending of the second part or like scattered throughout the second part, even in the whole third part, take place in this building that is designed to basically drive people crazy um, as as effectively the paradox spiral of the title of the film. Um, and I think that, that some of those like weird disorienting or like unusual or exotic camera choices are meant to induce that effect um, as long with some of the editing choices induce that effect in the audience. 
I mean, this is another whole way we could approach, and, and this could be the way we approach this movie for an entire podcast, is just discussing how they articulate the space of the building. Because, you know, animated productions have sets in much the same way live-action ones do. It's just they're, you know, they still have to be conceptualized. They just don't have to be built in the mm-hmm. real world, right? Um, not that sets in movies today are always built in the real world. <laughs> thank you, Marvel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not actually thank you. But anyway, uh, but this is like one of the best and fullest articulated sets I've ever seen in an animated production. Uh, maybe just the most. I'd have to think on it, but it's incredibly like in depth how they have created this space. And part of that is that it's not just the space itself; it's that it explodes out into the entire structure of the movie, into visual techniques they use, into the editorial techniques. In that the movie itself becomes the paradox spiral, so you know what it feels like to be in this building because it's the feeling of watching this movie to a certain degree. Yes. Yeah. Because. You know, as you get explained to you kind of at the beginning of the end of part one, and then you get trickled through part two, because Toko, we learn, was one of the people who designed the building because it's her and her group of um, like mage buddies from the clock tower in London. Or I guess they have not said the clock tower yet. The clock tower is a thing we'll talk about later. Um, but the maid, you it's like kind of like it. Hogwarts. Why should I cool. even watch the rest of these, Sean? You ruined it. <laughs> yes. Now I know there's a clock tower involved. I'm done. I'm kidding. Yeah, imagine imagine what if like Hogwarts was rad as shit. Um, that's what the clock tower in London was. I like, did. What if like, yeah, I did have a little bit of imagining like because this is two boys and a girl and they're all at a magic school. There is a little bit of a Harry Ron Hermione thing going on here, and I love the idea of a Harry Potter sequel one day where I guess it would be Harry rips off Hermione's, uh, rips out Hermione's heart, squeezes it to death, <laughs> then rips off her head, and then Ron squeezes her eye out and crushes the head. That would be a pretty fucked up Harry Potter sequel, you know. With the way yeah. J.K. Rowling is going, who the hell knows? It could happen. Um, but I also I like you calling Soden a boy when he's okay. like he's like a hundred years old immortal like monk priest uh who like we have seen is like on the battlefield of like fucking sekigahara or some shit <laughs> it's, it's he's like that's my favorite mental image is like that dude you know because they, they say at school quote unquote and when you get brief flashes of what the clock tower which is the school that they go to in london that trains mages one of the schools in this world that trains mages it makes more sense this is not Hogwarts, right. it's not like buddies going to school. You know, you're going to have weird, crazy monk people and shit like that at that the clock tower. Um, but it is funny that they, they sometimes just refer to it as like, oh, back in my school days uh, when you're a 500-year-old crazy monk dude. Um, but yes. It's like, um, you know how there's that super fucking weird, given the source material, Attack on Titan chibi show where they're in high school yes. together? It's like Kara no Kyokai High School. And it's these three at like a Hogwarts-esque setting and they're all chibi-fied. That would be really disturbing. It would be very disturbing. Anyways, the thing we learn is that she helped design the building, right? Yes. Uh, before we went on, on, on my clock tower uh, diversion. Um, but I like the, the sort of the weird explanation you start getting of the design of this building, that particularly later when Kokto describes it, where he gets, I think, even to more detail of it. It's like these two semicircle towers. And obviously this is like meant to reflect the yin-yang symbol that you get at the beginning of the movie or in all the title cards. Um, and that had the yin yang thing has been a motif all the way throughout. Um, but these two semicircles and that they are separated. You can only cross from one to the other at the lobby. And there is something about that idea alone that is like weirdly, really uncomfortable to me. There's something like in my bones, the idea of being in that building and like 
knowing there's this like mirror other building right there, but you to, if you wanted to go to someone on the other side of it, you have to go all the way down to the lobby, cross around to the lobby and go up. There's something about that, like the boundary that is set up there that is like very discomforting to me. And I don't know what it is, but I think like something about that idea that Nasu hits on, I think like hits something in your gut of like, there's something off about that barrier and like the inaccessibility and having to go to this like nexus at the bottom of the building in order to like physically cross over. Um, so there's just something there that's weird about the design of the whole thing. But then, of course, you get all the stuff of the elevator slowly shifts when it goes up. And so, like, the whole design of the building is meant to disorient you. So you cannot tell which floor you're on. You are going to the wrong rooms because it has moved around. Um, it, it's like a little bit. I wonder if it was inspired by this, the H.H. Holmes murder house effectively who H.H. Home was a, a serial killer in America in the late 19th century who one like he trapped people in his house that he had designed and designed this house with like weird dead ends and like strange like sort of angled rooms and stuff to disorient people um and then he killed them um and there's something about some of the explanation here that feels a little like that it's about to like you're meant to be disoriented trapped um, like guided um, to like places that are where you are not intending to go. Um, and then the whole design of the building is meant to sort of like cage you in. Um, and, and, you know, ultimately Soren is using this to create, as he describes, like a kind of pocket world. Like it's his own little like experiment of humanity closed off from the rest of existence um, as he's like repeating the deaths of every single person that lives in this complex um, in order for him to try to, I don't know if we want to get into this yet, but him trying to reach the root I mean, all this crazy shit of like his mage experiments effectively and, and trying to sort of get at the truth of humanity and reality by creating his own world for him to experiment with humanity. Um, and like that whole like exploration you do of that space throughout the whole movie and those kind of slow reveals of what all this is and how it is trapping and killing these people is very effective and it's very disturbing. It is. And, and you know, you were comparing it to H.H. Holmes and stuff like that, but I, I like how the movie really pulls it out just of sort of the daily surreality of living in a high rise mm -hmm. or an apartment building. Like um, Toko has this whole monologue, one of her many, you know, insightful philosophical monologues where when they're in the elevator, she says to Kokto, she says, you know, high rises are strange. The higher you go up in the elevator, the harder it is to figure out where you are. If one manipulated the buttons and switched the floor numbers, you wouldn't be able to tell whether you were on the fourth floor or the fifth. The only way to verify where you live is the small directory in print in small print in the lobby units rooms and ordinary everyday life can easily become out of the ordinary and i think that's just a great piece of writing and it's you know what this building really is is it's not necessarily in a in a storytelling sense it's not supposed to be like an alternative to high-rise living it is the like nth degree exploded out version mm -hmm. of this admittedly weird human phenomenon right and you and i have never lived in areas where like you know you would live in like a big high-rise tower or something like that but you know i've certainly been to like hotels or something in a big city where you go up 50 floors and it's just extraordinarily surreal to get in a box and then get out of the box and the only reason i know i am this high up in the air is if i go look out a window but there aren't that many windows or i just trust that's what the box did you know and the idea that the box mm -hmm could not do that, that it could break your trust 
is genuinely very scary. And I think that is an idea this movie plays on because it is it is such a breach to to the body, to the mind, to get off the elevator and not be where you think you are, you know? Yeah, to have been taken by the elevator where the elevator wants you to go, not where you have wanted to go. Um, One of the many yeah. ways in which, you know, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory is a house of horrors and the man should not exactly. be around children. Well, no, truly, actually, all elevators should be big glass elevators, I think, the thing we learned, because then you'd be able to figure it the fuck out. That's true. Um, now I want yeah, UFO yeah, Tables, Willy Wonka, and the Chocolate Factory anime. That could be pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, but there is something, as you say, there's something like kind of um, dehumanizing or something about the experience, um, particularly like this weaponized version of this experience, but this experience of being shuffled off into this weird little microcosm of its own of this big tower um and that you're kind of isolated out from everything surrounded by people and surrounded by like metal and glass but somehow you're also like removed completely from the world um and that is and that is what Soren is like literally doing he is literally removing people from the world in a metaphysical sense with the way that metaphysics work in the reality of like the Nazi stuff is like they are cut off from the whole like spiritual concept and the cycles of like reincarnation and the energy and like all the things that exist in our world. Um, they are in their own microcosm and, and he, they need to be for him to perform his experiments. Um, and yeah, there's something about like the combining of the sort of fancy and horror metaphysics and everything of this, uh, uh, movie and then that is all related very intentionally to this sort of real world thematic experience yeah why don't we just go ahead and like get into the plan and break it down so we have it on the table so we can talk about all the different pieces of the movie because we're already pretty close to broaching all of that so i think we might as well yes um because this is also where we have to talk about some some of the proper nouns here um so <laughs> Uh, Garden of Sinners, uh, if you're, I mean, any English language version you're watching this on is a very old translation for a type moon thing. Um, because if you're watching it on Crunchyroll, it is, that is just pulling it from the old English language Blu-ray releases. Um, and so we now have much more standardized translations for some of the proper nouns in um, type moon stuff that are like common across different projects like Fate. This does not use those. Um, I'm trying to scroll through your uh, screenshots, Jonathan, to find uh, some of these because I know you had a couple. Because one of the main ones is the root, which I think they translate as they, like the vortex of it, radix. Yeah, it's the vortex of radix, also known as the Akashic Records, uh, which they call the root of all phenomena. And then they go in, it's the truth, all this stuff. Yeah. Yes. So this is a thing, the, the quote unquote vortex of radix. Um, what in Japanese is called the Kongen or Kongen no Uzu, um, which is now typically translated as the root. Or if you get the Kongen, the Uzu part of Kongen no Uzu would be the swirl of the root. Usually it's just called the root. Um, and I believe that that translation is actually a like Nasu. I think it comes from him. Like a lot of the English language stuff actually comes from him because he likes to do, let me write this thing in kanji and give it kind of a slightly either appropriate or sometimes very nonsensical English language word. Eventually we'll get to talk about <laughs> noble phantasms. And I'm very excited to, to, to have that conversation. Um, but the root I believe comes from him um, for, I'm not entirely sure what the radix part of the vortex of radix is, because that is presumably supposed to be the root part of the swirl of the root. Uh, but conceptually what it is, is it's the Akashic's record idea. Um, if you're familiar with that, if you've played um, some of the relatively recent, when this comes out, uh, Genshin Impact 
material with the Akasha terminal and all that. It's pulling on similar ideas. It is this idea that there is a metaphysical space, um, a conceptual space where all knowledge is quote unquote stored, not stored. It exists stored like implies intent. It exists in some sort of metaphysical place deep at like the root of reality and of existence. And by all of knowledge, I mean all things that have ever existed that currently exist that can and will and should exist in the future. And at the root time has no meaning. You know, time is a flat circle or whatever, like everything exists there, all knowledge of all of creation, everything that can, has, and ever will be um, is there. The goal of mages in the Nasuverse, whether you're talking about Kanon no Kyokai, Tsukihime, Fate, it's all connected. Um, the goal of mages, generally speaking, is to try to reach the root, because by reaching the root, you gain access to that knowledge, um, and you also then could cast true magic. That's the thing we'll like visit later when in fate, when that becomes more relevant, but effectively it allows them to sort of alter reality rather than just casting magic. That is like, I can shoot some fireballs or do some, like you, know, I can jump really high. I can do cool stuff. It's like, Oh, I can now alter the fundamental nature of what the world is because I have access to the root. Um, and that is, so what... it's like Gandalf magic instead of Harry Potter magic. Yes. Yeah. It's like more, um, <laughs> it's more conceptual if you're able right. to actually reach the root. And as uh, Toko says in this movie, like uh, Alba argues that nobody has ever reached the root. Nobody knows if the root actually exists. Toko says the root does exist. We know it must exist. Cause said like, if we wouldn't have the idea of it, if someone hadn't reached it, cause it is a conceptual place, but anyone who reaches the root presumably has died and can never come back. Um, but that is the goal of mages. So again, we will, it is a thing that will come up multiple times in fate. Uh, and when it does, it will not be called the Vortex of Radix. I have no idea where the fuck that translation comes from. It will be called the Root um, or the Swirl of the Root if they want to give the full translation. Um, and again, like Akashic Records is just that idea. Um, so Akashic Records is, if you know what that is from like actual history or like theosophy, where that idea comes from, it is that concept. Um, the, the Vortex other, of Radix yeah. very much sounds like something you would get in Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yes. Not quite something you would get here. Not that, I mean, there is overlap, obviously. Yeah, we know Nasu was inspired by Eva, but it sounds like the kind of bullshit you would get in Eva that I, I love and hate at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the term The Root because it's like, it's very clear. And it's a very direct translation of Kongen, the Japanese word that's used, which literally is like the word for root in the word in the kanji for like origin. So it's it's that idea. It's like the root of all things. Um, the other big proper noun we need to talk about that I actually did not remember was in this movie, um, but is going to be a thing that will come up later in Fate, uh, is what is generally called the counterforce. They call it here, I think they call it the deterrence force, I want to say, was the tr translation they used, which is a very boring name for the counterforce. Um, the counterforce is, like, this is the thing that, like, one of the reasons why Sorden has to create this whole experiment is he needs to create his own microcosm of a world in order to cut itself off from the rest of existence in order to hide it from the counterforce. The counterforce is basically conceptually like a force that exists in the world, like an energy that's generated um, by like the collective subconscious, which is an idea that comes up at the end of this movie as well. Um, that is a, a basically an energy that tries to push back against any threat 
against like reality. Like, so any sort of like extinction level threat of humanity or anything that would like alter reality in some way that could potentially be irreparable, the counterforce tries to move against that. You can almost think of like the force in Star Wars. It's a thing that's trying to create some level of stability and any timeline or anything that goes too far off um, into kind of dangerous territory, the counterforce will usually through like mysterious means try to move against it. It'll like kind of act through characters, produce events, um, or then eventually we'll get like there are agents of the counterforce and that is like a concept we'll eventually talk about. Um, but here, I think arguably Shiki is like the counterforce is operating through Shiki, I think is one like interpretation of the movie. Um, and, and the thing that I think Toko kind of offers up and like that the barrier, the the kind of microcosm that Shodan has constructed starts to fall apart because Injo is able to escape and like open it up to the influence of the rest of the world. He's kind of able to reconnect to his humanity and thus symbolically like reconnect to the public and like the, the universal subconscious of humanity or the collective unconscious and thus like give the counterforce access um, to what is happening here. And Shiki is kind of arguably that is why she is as powerful as she is at the end of the movie. If you want to get very literal about it is like the counterforce is moving through her, not to say that she doesn't have her own will, um, again, it's more of like a force in Star Wars kind of mystical concept. Um, but that's a that's part of what is happening here in the kind of the metaphysics. So you're brushing up against these like spiritual philosophical concepts of these kinds of energies or ideas or forces that exist fundamental to the nature of reality in this universe that because of how far Soden is going, he's trying to access some fundamental nature of reality and alter it so that he can get um, record the deaths of all of humanity of any human that has ever lived or will ever live. He wants to basically end humanity and record their deaths because he thinks that that will give everybody meaning that if the, if their deaths are marked down in some conceptual history, everybody's death will be as meaningful as everybody else's death. And for him, that would like prevent the tragedy that he has seen repeated throughout history that all these people die and nobody ever remembers like 99% of everybody who has ever died. And that is kind of his desire. And the counterforce would move against a desire like that and accessing the root because it, it is against the will of the, of the collective subconscious. Um, so that's like the like the, kind of the big, weird Nasu kind of stuff that is happening if you want to get to that level. Well, no, that's good. And I'm glad to hear that that explanation, because even with the best subtitles on Earth, I wouldn't have known about it in that depth because I haven't read and seen all this other yes. stuff. Um, but I will say, I think the subtitles, the subtitles are totally fine. This is like the official like Annie Plex, you know, subtitles that mm -hmm. are on their releases and on Crunchyroll. But I definitely the the use of the term deterring force or again, whatever I'm forgetting what it was exactly too. I, I think the way they presented it, and I couldn't quite tell what it was in Japanese because some of this is crazy Japanese above my level, um, mm -hmm. is like it, it almost sounded like I, I was because they, they there's also the barrier that, you know, Soren is making. And I got I'm like, is did he make both barriers? What's it's a little confusing, especially if the terminology is not super like clear about it. Uh, counterforce does seem like a much clearer concept. Yes, because it's meant to counter something. It's not meant to deter something. Like, I think deterrence right. force, which I'm pretty sure is what they call it, is like a bad translation that's not... Yeah, I mean, again, I don't think it would be particularly clear anyways. It's not like the movie stops to explain it. Um, I glanced at some of these sections in the book, and, it, and the book is a lot more clear on it because it's... Of course it is, because it's able to stop and kind of 
explain those concepts more clearly because you're you get like more kind of access to toko talking about it whereas that would slow the movie down to a snail's pace and you wouldn't ever want to do that for a movie um but i do think it, the terminology i wish that they were a little bit sort of like cleaner on because i think those official translations we've now settled on which is what they will talk about in fate or if you play fate grand order all these things pop up in that game um i think those are better terms um yeah yeah no, that makes sense and that's cool and i'm forgetting the exact like where Tsukihime and Fate kind of all fit into this. Is is Karno Kyokai the first like published thing where he's articulating some of these ideas? The first published thing, yes. Um a lot of these ideas are developed in Mahotsukai no Yodu, the thing that now the remake of the visual novel is gonna come out or will be out right. by the time that these podcasts come out. That is the first thing he writes, that original novel version, but that is never published. Um and that actually there's a reference to that in this movie because the main character of Mahotsukai no Yoru is Aoko Aozaki, which is Toko's younger sister. So some of the, the little hints you get of Toko's background, those are actually ideas he pulled from um, Mahotsukai no Yoru. She's a character in that as well. Making me even more excited to yes. read that visual novel that I will probably have already read by the time this is out. But yes, very, very cool. Also another compelling reason for Ufo Table to be doing the movie of that, which they are. So very good. <laughs> So, so that's the that's the the big crazy like universe metaphysics stuff. Where do you want to go yes. from now, Jonathan? Well, because what that results in is you know Enjo is there are a lot of characters suffering in this apartment complex, but Enjo is of course our point of view character in this, and he is the one who, as you say, escapes because uh, it kind of escapes because of Soren's arrogance. Soren could have mm -hmm. stopped him, but like considers it, uh, you know. It won't influence things because this, you know, what he considers a mindless doll sort of got out yeah. of the simulation, right? He calls him, he says his origin is worthlessness. If you yes. if you wanted to get into the, like, even more metaphysic stuff, there's the concept that, like, everybody is born with a, like, origin or kigen is the word, Japanese word, um, that is, like, a kind of almost, like, elemental idea in some ways. That it's, like, it's a fundamental part of, like, your core spiritual identity deep down you're ingrained like in, it is ingrained in who you are that's like retained through the cycle of reincarnation and stuff like that um and that uh Soden claims that Shiki's uh origin is nothingness is like the kata of kata no kyokai um and then he says that Enjo's is worthlessness um and so like that's he sees him as someone who has literally no value because from his perspective that's like not only not only like is he useless from Sordin's point of view, like he is the concept of uselessness effectively itself. It is engraved in the nature of it and just very being is that he's kind of pointless. He's he will always be someone who accomplishes nothing, whose life will end meaninglessly. Um, as with from for Sordin, the majority of humanity leads and ends meaningless lives that will be forgotten. And Enjo is just another one of those. And for Sordin's perspective, Sordin accomplishing his goal will give Enjo's life some amount of meaning because he will be equivalent to everybody else in this like historical record um this again this kind of conceptual record that Soren wants to make of all of humanity and sort of like level that all out yeah and you know as much as is going on in this movie and it's a lot there is a very clear central arc with Enjo because it is yes. ultimately a journey of him from 
the feeling of, you know, even if he doesn't know all of what Soren is saying, he does, at the beginning of this movie, think his life is worthless because he killed yes. his parents, or he thinks he killed his parents, and he... Uh, believes he should just die, basically, and he has no worth. Um, it just so happens that the person he runs into is probably the one person on Earth he could run into who would accept him because it's the one person who wouldn't run screaming when he says, I just murdered people and I inhaled their guts. And Shiki is like, oh, cool, come to my place, right? Because not exactly like that. But it is sort of, Shiki is the one person who is not going to like look at this murderer and go, oh, well, you're awful, I'm going to call the cops or something, right? Shiki is like, this is interesting, let's talk. Um, because Shiki, one, as we come to learn, is dealing with a sort of loneliness from not having Koto around as much. Um, and then there is, you know, these other just it, it, perpetual effects that she's having about, you know, her own existence. And when they come together, you do have its nothingness and worthlessness, you know, sort of bouncing off each other and discovering that there's actually a lot there. And of course, Enjo's mm -hmm. journey over the course of this movie is discovering how much he does care about the world and waking up to that and ultimately deciding in, you know, I just find a tremendously moving scene when he and Kokto are at the apartment deciding on what to do. And he decides, I'm going to go to that building. I am probably going to die, but I promised Shiki I was going to die but I'm going to die for myself. You know, I'm going to go here for my parents, for myself to make sure this, you know, meant something. Um, and I think that's incredible. And even though Enjo dies 20 minutes before the movie ends, like technically is when his body is destroyed, his spirit so clearly survives through everything everyone is talking about, through what Shiki does, through the insistence characters make of it's the wound he gives to send uh, Soren that like makes this all possible. Um, and so he is really the main character of the movie. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's like he, uh, Toko, like, you know, gives you that, her part of her speech at the end to sort of is like, hey, like, it's all of this fell apart because this one little boy who, who like represents or is like family love, you know, had this love for his family, escaped your little experiment. And that created like the one hole that needed to happen. Um, and it's like, and that's all this happened because of him, um, because because you let him get away. And then, of course, you get the 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 ending scene of him kind of effectively moving off into the afterlife at the very, very ending. So, yes, like his spirit definitely like sort of permeates through to the full end of the movie. And I mean, he's clearly like the primary protagonist of this film, even though he's absent for a big stretch of the second part of the movie when you're primarily with Kokdo, um, because Enjo is the first character you met in the movie. He is the one who you were with for the whole intro. While you're with Kokto, you're kind of waiting constantly for Kokto and Enjo to intersect. The beginning of part two is Kokto going to Shiki's room after we after you saw Enjo run there. After he you know, left the apartment, he runs into the room, uh, Shiki's room. Kokto walks up. This is another one of those shots where you do not realize that you're cutting, cutting to a different time period. At some point, because when Kokto tries the door, you get a shot interiorly of Enjo's like eye at the eye hole. Um, and then you cut to Kokto is not able to open the door because it's locked. He's like, huh, Shiki never locks her door. And you realize later you come to understand that is like a different time he has tried to open Shiki's door after she has started locking it. Um, so even that intro to part two, you are like building to this moment where you're going to see Mikia and Enjo intersect. And then it is kind of pulled out from under you as you then go on that journey with Kokto to reach that point at the end of that section. Yeah. And he's uh, just a tremendously compelling character because it is, I mean, it's mixing so many different character types and archetypes. I don't know even how to describe it, but you have, you know, the person with this 
guilt, you know, over you know, the, the murderer who is full of guilt, but also because it's not clear what reality is. You also have someone who's almost almost an amnesiac in a sense. I mean, literally, because mm -hmm. also there are parts of his past he is missing that he accesses again in that really standout sequence near the end. Um, you have kind of a like robot learning to love narrative. <laughs> that's, that's, that's mm -hmm. you know, I'm I'm simplifying it, but you have a character who you know we are very clear in the end is a is a doll is something created claiming their humanity and it's doing all of these things that i think i i can draw parallels to in other stories but collapsing them all into the same character and having all these things going on at once is so interesting and for me the moment that crystallizes enjo as a character is the absolutely striking shot of him when he gets into the warehouse at the bottom of the apartment complex and it is the room full of all the brains in jars uh, which mm -hmm. just an iconic image, an unbelievable, uh, feels like something out of Akira or something. It's crazy. Uh, yes. And he has all these brains in jars, and he goes and finds the one that is his, that is, you know, Tomoe Enjo's. And you have a shot from the point of view of the brain in the jar. So there is, like, glass and water distorting the image as we're looking at the doll Enjo's face and the horror of this moment of the brain, you know, symbolically the soul disconnected from this body the body is somewhere else gone and what we find out it's fucking dead and decaying in the room uh, uh -huh. it's horrifying but it is also this moment of him claiming his humanity because once he figures that out and realizes it he becomes very resolute in that he's going to fucking die for something and in dying for something actually live in a way that you know Soren thought was impossible in this body uh, and that is just uh, that image so crystallizes that in a way that me putting it into words feels like completely unnecessary you know it's just the image does that for you yeah i mean it's part of like the poetry of the movie right that you've been on a such a journey with the character because also you know uh, that whole first part is uh, that first 40 minutes of the movie is primarily like the series of montages of him living out this weird sheltered life in Shiki's apartment and slowly like kind of going out into the world eventually you know he sees his mom or like the automaton that is his mom like walking out there and stuff and he kind of brings that back to Shiki but there's a big big stretch of the movie where you're just with him stewing in this uncertainty of what has happened like did he kill his parents did he not kill his parents um all of that because you know obviously also one of the things at the beginning of the movie is that the police go to investigate and they knock on the door and the dad answers the call right and that's like the thing that sets us like are they dead or are they not what is actually going on here um and so you spend so much time with the character there. Then you get this long period of absence from the character when you're with Kokto. And then you get to come back with the two of them. Um, and then you get to learn about his uh, history with his family, right? And and that's where one of the main motifs of this movie come up. And we hit on it, like, or it was mentioned earlier with the Toko speech in the elevator. But a primary motif of this movie is the concept of Nichijo or everyday life um, of that. Uh, I think there's like a lot here of this idea. I think that the movie really values not the like big noble lives or whatever. It's about that, like the regular life that you have, the everyday, the moment to moment, the interchangeable things you do every single day, the eating of your ice cream, taking a bath, doing your laundry, 
going to the bathroom, like the things that like all of us do all the time that makes up 95% or whatever of our fucking lives is like sleeping, eating, doing chores. Um, like that's what our lives are. And that there is like a peace and quiet and normalcy to that regular everyday life. And it's, it's using the word Nichijo in Japanese, which is literally the word like the kanji for day and the kanji for regular. Um, so like everyday life is how you usually translate that term. Um, but it's just like, it's your routine is another way to think about it. Um, and that is something that like has been taken from Injo, right? Uh, Shiki says to him uh, that like what you should have been doing is trying to protect your everyday life, trying to like protect what your like regular life was. And that's what his home was, right? Because it's also connected to this idea of like, where did you live? Like, what was your home? Not this like weird spiral paradox apartment, but your what you feel was your home. And then that all connects to Kokto taking him there. And you get this beautiful flashback of him as a kid with his father, who at this point we only really know as like this alcoholic abusive father. But when, uh, you know, there was a period when Injo was a little kid, clearly his dad still had issues. We find out that like he's clearly he was an alcoholic his whole life because we know he lost his license because he was had a DUI. Eventually he gets into an accident. He was driving without a license. He was probably drunk, got a person killed. And that created this like spiral from which he couldn't recover. Um, but there was this period where Injo saw a positive side of his father and his father gives him that speech about the key. And it's like this key is a thing that protects us, right? It's a thing that like creates the boundary, that it separates the like inside life, the interior life, the family from the outside world. And it's like this key is the thing that like binds us together and keeps us safe. Um, and I think there's such a powerful message there that connects to this day of everyday life and connects to the recurring imagery in the movie of unlocking of doors or trying to get into a door and the door is locked and you can't get access to it. Um, that these keys and these locks are things that allow us to build these boundaries that define what is our regular, what is our everyday life and what is not. And that is all stuff that has been, that Tomoe has been robbed of in this weird apartment with this abusive relationship he now has with his, his parents. And then this like controlling presence of Soden that has manipulated everything and twisted it and exaggerated everything to the point where now they're dead and they're regular. Their everyday life is repeating their last days, repeating their death over and over and over again. And every positive thing they had has been taken from them at this point. Um, I think that there's something so powerful about that slow buildup of ideas, that slow buildup of motifs um, to you then learning this little beautiful scene with the key and the dad in the past. Um, and seeing that, like, this is the thing of that when Shiki said, you, what you needed to try to do was protect your everyday life is like, you need to try to like, find some way to either win that past back or find a new home that will give you a new regular life that you can have. Um, but like, that's what you need to do. Living this kind of like dead zombie existence is not going to help you. And that's, you know, this idea is is conferred to us also in that one of the first big montages in the movie about sort of the passage of time of Enjo at Shiki's apartment. And one of the, the obviously the main visual motif of that is both characters unlocking the door and coming yeah. in or out. And the end of that montage is a flash of, of going from Enjo doing it to Shiki doing it back and forth, like 
at such a speed that it is almost seizure inducing, right? They do mm-hmm. it like dozens and dozens of times. And it is that idea of like, that is, that is the core of, because that's the beginning and ending of a day symbolically, right? Of the leaving home, coming home, you know, locking the boundary, reopening the boundary and going back over it. Um, and they do sort of create this thing for each other that does have meaning, which is part of why, you know, Enjo fights for it in the end. And that everyday life, um, that Nichijo is the thing Soren not only so had such so couldn't find meaning in had such disdain for that he twists it and curdles it into this thing that makes people in this building go crazy and kill each other again it's like this is a horror movie and it's a horror movie in that sense of like that is one of the most profound violations i can imagine it's a horror movie in the same way as like i think twin peaks firewalk with me is of like Mm -hmm. something in what should be your normal good daily life curdling into something so abhorrent that that is kind of the deepest kind of horror you can imagine yeah um absolutely and i think there's just like so much built into this movie of that relationship of of the daily life because i think you get it in that part one with the montage i think part two also communicates it through part of that like with a rhyming scene concept i think communicates that as well there's like part of your like everyday regular routine of your life is there's an interchangeability of individual moments. And so I think like collapsing those moments into like these kind of super moments of time that is moving fluidly between one or another, I think also gets like some of that feeling across as well in a way I think is very interesting that like you can kind of conflate every time you go to this apartment together, you can conflate every time you're having a conversation in the office together, that these are every time you go to your friend's house, in this case, Cocteau is like, it's unsuccessful, but he's trying it multiple times. And it's part of like the regular routine of this couple of months of time that pass in the Cocteau side of the story. Um, And you're kind of experiencing that in this weird collapsed way. um, I think is very compelling. Um, and then the other thing is like to get on back onto the Soren point of how he connects to this. Cause I was scrolling through, cause I thought you had this line in your screenshots. I think one really important line at the end of the movie, you know, he has this whole speech before he dies, but I think the most important line in that speech is him saying, I'm, I'm no one. I just want a conclusion because I think all that Soren is, is he just wants an end. Like he doesn't think about or care about, or is not interested in like the means or the, anything in between where he is and the end that he he desires. He just wants that conclusion, that end, which is death. Everything is dead, but like I can be comfortable knowing that like all those deaths are known and they're all equal and it's like everything is is over. And that's all he wants is that end because he only sees value in that. He doesn't see the value in the things that he understands as being meaningless. The, you know, all these people, these deaths that he finds being meaningless, which is all these, like, the normal people that are killed, the the random soldier on this, like, Japanese battlefield that they cut to that shot multiple times of him caressing the, the shoulder, the dead soldier's face. Um, and, like, clearly he is, like, it has traumatized him in some way that all these people that die what he considers worthless deaths but he doesn't think about the meaning that their lives had while they lived it for them. All those people had their Nichijo, their regular life, their daily routine. They all had those moments stacked upon moments that gave meaning to their lives. Um, and that's like his mistake is that he can't see that. And Toko, who is, you know, his sort of counter, she does understand that because when we see the first Toko die, 
the thing she says to him is that she found meaning in, she uses the word Nichijo there, like in her daily life, built up of like all these like small miracles, I think is how she describes it. Um, and that that was the thing that she had come to find meaning in, even though she was from the same world as these other two people. She comes from the world of magic. She comes from all the things that being from the world of magic means in this universe, which is this obsession with power and knowledge and this like need, this ambition um, that drives them, right? That causes these mages in the Nasu stuff, mages almost universally are like fucking monsters, basically. Like a good mage is a very hard thing to come across because they're driven by this need um, for knowledge and power. Uh, and she has kind of let go of all that because she has found this kind of beautiful everyday life with Kokto and with Shiki. And that's what she's fighting for and willing to die to to try to get back. Um, I think like all of that, again, that motif that you see, it, is, it permeates the whole film. It's so powerful. I think one of the most amazing things about the movie is that that is just one of the motifs because all of these yes. like other scenes are usually also touching on multiple other motifs as well. But this was like one of the ones that I think hit me really hard. Oh, absolutely. And it's another way where I think the movie's editorial structure is doing so much to make you feel this because I could very easily imagine, and I don't think this would be a stretch at all, the 13 episode single core anime adaptation of this story. And I don't mean uh -huh. all of Karno Cook. I mean this one chapter, right? You could do th easily. I think that would be pretty. You could. It wouldn't feel like you were stretching it out at a certain point, right? And I think in the thirteen episode version, the big flashback that Enjo has at his house, where he sees his real memories of the father and all of that, that could be a twenty two minute episode. And I again, I don't think it would feel like it was. It would be you would be stretching it, but I think condensing it into like that's a quick scene. It's not like a big ten minute stretch of film. It's like five minutes max. It really. You know, they pile on this story of a lifetime right in there through these, you know, repetitive images and fast cuts and breaking of chronology. And we've done it all over the movie and how we're breaking time and showing how, you know, moments blend together. Because if you take two moments out of chrono chronology that are similar, they feel like continuity editing, but they aren't. And that gives you this, like, in-your-gut, you know, sense of this, this visceral sense of the way time collapses on itself, but in a meaningful way, in that we are we are kind of living in this kind of spiral just in a daily life, in that, you know, if you were asked to recount your week day by day from, you know, last week, it would be very hard to go hour by hour, day by day, and say what you did, but you would remember the themes, you would remember the, like, three classes I taught this week about this book and the way the students reacted, but I wouldn't remember it in this order. I would remember how they all kind of came together in this way, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think the movie is simulating for you sort of the human experience of these ideas, of the everyday life. Uh, as confusing as, as the movie is in its structure, it's also giving you that in a way that you wouldn't get if it were more, you know, straightforward and slower paced. Yeah, and I think one thing to like illustrate that point that's very fascinating that I can, you know, comment on because I watched this movie years and years ago originally, um, is that like the the experience of watching this movie does that exact thing that like I think it is impossible in your brain to actually kind of like for a longer period of time retain the phenomena of the structure of this movie. It like inevitably it collapses into a thing that is more logical because in my memory. Like, I, all I remembered about this movie was, like, I mean, I remembered the plot. I remembered, like, some of the really big key action scenes. I very distinctly remember the ending because the ending has always stuck with me with this movie. 
And I remember that it had the three part structure that you started with like Shiki and Tomoe, that the middle part was with Kokuto and then it all comes like it kind of combines together at the end. But I couldn't have articulated anything about the like complexities of the editorial structure of this movie at all after that long of a period of time, because even though I could have talked at length in my memory of the themes and some of the ideas and the plot line of this movie, I could have probably described in some amount of detail to you. I would not have been able to replicate anything or like commented anything specific about this structure because I think it's like impossible for the brain to remember things that way. It's going to create a more logical or coherent thing out of what has been presented to you. I think that there's something very cool about how that works. It's almost like compressed data in a computer uh-huh. that, you know, you take all these, you know, not I'm not a computer programmer, but I know the basics of, you know, compressing bits and then uncompressing them to be something that is visible to the user, um, which is also how our brain, to the best of our knowledge, stores memories and stuff, right? Is it kind of mm. blows it apart and puts it in different places and then we recollect it in out of order and the movie, yeah, it's... To be able to access that and think about that is an incredible feat of of artistic uh, effort. Yeah, and the way that it, it, it replicates all these phenomena that the movie is trying to comment on with its story and then its structure is able to replicate those ideas. You know, it's particularly, it is this like notion that you are you are experiencing the paradox spiral, right? They are like throwing you in the midst of it with the way that the movie is built rather than you trying to admire it from a distance, um, which I think is how like we would conventionally try to do this sort of story is you place the viewer at a distance from the disorientation or confusion. Maybe you have like a cold open or something on like an X-Files episode if you had a similar premise that gives you that effect and it's very weird and kind of nutty. But then ultimately, you're really kind of watching most of the story from a remove admiring the full thing, admiring the like to use some of their terminology, like the Taiji or the Supreme Ultimate you know, the com- the combination of the yin and the yang, and you're admiring the whole, the single, the one piece, um, rather than being in the midst of it and the chaos of it not being able to see the full thing. You're in the midst of these kind of battling forces um, of the yin and the yang and all of that. That's a much more interesting experience, I think, for a story is try to put the viewer in there rather than put them in the audience seat. Exactly, yeah. Can we talk about Toko in this movie? Yes. Because she goes through some shit. Um, uh-huh. I'm, I'm tempted to just jump straight to the most graphically violent stuff in this uh, series of movies so far, which is her multiple deaths. Uh, but, you know, there's there's so many things going on with her in this film. This is, I mean, this is technically the most we've had of all these characters because it's the longest movie. But I feel like, you know, not only do we have a lot of her in this movie, but we get some of her backstory. We're learning about these other, you know, mages that she has a relationship with. We see, as you said earlier, that most of the mages in this universe are pretty shitty people. She is a pretty good person and we see how different she is from them like her whole kind of almost I I struggle to say it's a lackadaisical worldview because she's very she's so analytical of everything but she's a very go with the flow kind of person in what Uh we've seen so far which is very different from the I'm going to end the world to make sense of it which is what Soren is so there is this like she sorry there's this like higher level battle of the like leading mage characters that are you know fundamentally different worldviews. It's like a Professor X Magneto or a fucking, you know, um, I was going to, I want to not use a Harry Potter reference, but, you know, for the, <laughs> for the, all the people out there, Dumbledore, Voldemort, something like that, you know? I think the uh, the big thing with Toku is that she's let go of her, like, ambition. Like, yeah. that's one of the big things about these mages is that they are driven by this, like, inhuman 
extreme ambition that like goes again this is all stuff you'll get in fate but like it's typically mages are part of like these big families or clans that go back like generations and it's passed down from one to the other and it's like this big thing of like this need this drive um that pushes you forward to try to go to the root and like find the truth of reality and like make your mark on the world um and and like you know Basically, Shiki's family is a part of that whole structure. I don't think they're technically mages, but they're part of that world, right? Because she has inherited her mystic eyes of death perception. Like, part of the whole, the weird, the weirdness you saw in some of, like, her manner and stuff and the attitude of her family, her, like, father, the fucking fighting with real swords and shit in the dojo that you saw in movie two. That's, like, that kind of attitude that a lot of the mages have in this universe. Um, I think the thing that makes Toko compelling is that like she has let go of all of that she doesn't care she doesn't want that ambition as she says she just wants to like live this daily normal life that made up of all these miracles of all these individual moments and that's all she needs and she cares about these kids you know we're going to get more of azaka in the, the kokuto's little sister in the next movie is like a big thing for her you get a little bit of her in this movie and it becomes like more confirms that she is toko's apprentice and so she's like she's passing on some of this like magic to someone who's just like a normal person, not like a destined heir or some shit like that. She's just living like a normal everyday life, letting go of all of those things. And um, when you get the Alba and particularly Soren re-entering things, you see that the kind of twisted, ambitious world that they come from and how like kind of how fucked up they are, right? Like how, how far it has twisted them. Alba has this whole speech about how he's like, you know, his whole thing is he's jealous of Toko because she always outperformed him. Um, and then she just let all that shit go. You know, it's like the, the student that got straight A's when you were like trying your hardest and you could never do better than them. And then they graduated and they like went and ran their like family bakery and lived a happy life, but didn't go become like the CEO of like a fortune 500 company. Like you thought they were going to do. It's like that kind of thing. Um, and he's just like, how could you let all this go? Like, you always beat me. And he just walked away from this life. Um, uh, and I, I think that's like, there's there's something so suggestive about that, right? Like, there's, I, there's no story, as far as I know, that goes into more detail of any of those specific characters. Obviously, Toko pops up in other stuff. But Alba and Soren, this is, as far as I know, the only thing either of those characters ever appear in. I don't think there's a story that actually tells their, like, life their school life at the clock tower or anything like that but it paints such a picture in this movie it's so evocative of what their life must have been like and what their relationships must have been like um again by when this originally came out all the stuff about toka's little sister that wasn't in a thing that you could get yet it would be like 10 years after this before mahotsukai no yori the visual novel actually came out with aoka so like this whole backstory that dasu developed in this unreleased novel that he sort of like some elements he trinkles in here and he gives this whole kind of vision of a bigger world out there that he has yet to have depicted any part of in any other story um at this point i think it's just like it's very fun because it gives you this like taste of this magical world that you don't really get full access to yet i one of the things i love about toko and soren here is there's these this is a whole other thread we could spend hours talking about is there's a lot of like 
references to various, you know, sort of faith systems, particularly Buddhism uh-huh. is explicitly brought up here in a couple of places. Um, the whole idea of that, that Soren has Buddha's ashes embedded in his left hand, which blocks <laughs> the eyes of death perception, which I love as a like explanation is crazy. And it comes back when they sort of Toko and Soren have like their final conversations at the end is there's some stuff about Buddhism, but Toko is like much closer to the ideal of like a Bodhisattva than Soren mm-hmm. is right. Because she's actually let go of worldly attachment to some degree. Like she's let go yeah. of, those ambitions and she's the happiest character she's the most put together character in this series we keep coming back to her she's like the safe space we keep going back to um and it's and and it's like this movie is where you finally pinpoint why and it's because she's doing good works in the world she's going out and either saving lives or at least bringing some peace to the deceased or something right but she is not having an ambition of anything beyond that right um and it's such an interesting perspective yeah, um, and then you just get this whole very dramatic sequence in the movie, right, where Toko is brutally murdered, just like <laughs> the most brutal murder you have ever seen. It's, it's, you know, it's a thing that, like, only anime would ever be able to do this. Uh, Sorin punches through her, and, like, the, basically he does a fucking Mortal Kombat fatality, but even yes. worse, like, he, like, literally, like, punches through her, like, chest with her heart from behind, holds it there. They have like a brief conversation, a conversation longer than you would be able to have with anybody if you were literally holding their fucking heart in your hand. Uh, You know, Toko really like hangs in there for a while. He (laughs) crushes her heart, then rips her head off, which I think like that communicates so much about Toko that like, I can't, I need to be extra fucking sure. Like, it's not enough for me to have ripped your heart out of your chest and just physically destroyed your heart. I also have to take your fucking head off just to make sure you're not going to be a problem, right? And I think more than anything, that speaks volumes of who Toko is and how much of a threat he considers her to be. Um, And then puts her head in a jar. There's like a good solid, like 15 something minute stretch of this movie where as far as you know, Toko's fucking dead right and miki is like on his way to the the like whole mansion complex or whatever while this is happening yeah i haven't seen the rest of this series sean i haven't seen the other fate stay night stuff as far as i know this is the the end of the road for toko like and i they kind of sold me on it because i couldn't really see the out from heart ripped out of chest squeezed to death head you know put in a jar and then you didn't even mention the scene where alba takes uh-huh. the fucking head out pokes out the eye to make it look like it's crying and then crushes the whole head into fucking dust. I mean, it is so brutal. And again, to my knowledge, I'm like, there are only two episodes left in this thing. There's, you know, one to two more movies. And I know that, like, the movies they made afterwards are set earlier, so maybe this is it for Toko. I was very ready to be like, I guess they killed her. Uh, They did not kill her. They kind of killed her. It's just that there were two of her. Yes. Um, I mean, one, the main hint the movie gives you that Toko's not dead is that the, you know, because you have, you know, your dual scenes. So you have two scenes that take place in the lobby with Alba against the like fresco or whatever. Um, The one later is where um, he has brutalized Mikia. Um, and like smashed his head against that. <laughs> I was also like, worried about Gokdo. I was like, is he going to die? Yeah. yeah. It's like, luckily he's got a very thick skull from having to like deal with Shiki's bullshit all the time. So he's like developed <laughs> that like thick fucking head. So it's like, it saved his life for sure. But you know, so you have this thing of where Gokdo is like collapsed on the ground with blood splurted on the wall. And there is a shot the first time Toko enters what, as far as you know, the first time Toko enters that room with Alba standing behind the fresco, Mikia is on the ground with the blood on the wall. 
Um, but you have not seen that scene happen yet. And then it cuts to a wide shot and Miki is not there. And then it recuts back to the same shot you previously saw with Miki's body by the thing. And it's not there anymore either, because now you're fully in the first time she confronts Alba without necessarily knowing there's a second time. But that is a hint that like there is something else going on here. There's a duality of things occurring right. as you have seen throughout the movie. Um, and then of course you get, um, after you get all the stuff of Kokto showing up and um, as Injo's sneaking in and he confronts Alba um, and can do absolutely nothing against him because he's just a dude. <laughs> and, like <laughs> Alba's like a crazy mage man with a top hat um, and like is murdering people. Um, and then you get these shots of Toko driving up, but you also don't know We've had so much weird time freckery so far with the edit, it's not clear. But my fa- one of my favorite sequences of shots is you have this like weird aerial shot of the cars parked outside of, like on the street outside of the mansion. And it's like Toko's red car is there. Miki's car drives up. And then you get like a shot of like, oh, there's a second red car there. And I think it repeats one of the earlier shots. And then Toko's second, like a second red sports car that Toko has drives up. A detail I love is that apparently she not only are there two Tokos, she bought the same car twice, the exact same red sports car, <laughs> because she drives up um, and creates this cool symmetrical image of like this top down shot of like the exterior of the um, whole mansion complex with these two cars. But because it's like bordered on either side by the same red sports car, it like is this purely symmetrical shot. It's, it's a really good little sequence that cues you in on. There's something weirder going on here. And then Toko comes in. She unleashes a demon in her little suitcase, kills Alba brutally with it. Um, And you find out that uh, she had made a puppet, an identical puppet of herself, um, one that is completely indistinguishable from the real thing. And I think like part of like her whole she has no ambition is that once she has done that, it means like she she needs no ambition anymore. It's pointless. Because she doesn't need to do a thing. Because if she doesn't do the thing, then her clone, basically, that she's made will just do that thing. And it, like, creates this weird paradoxical loop of where it's like, well, I don't need to do, ever do anything anymore. Um, and I think that's part of her making this new version of herself allowed her to, like, logic herself almost in a very Toko-esque fashion out of the need for an ambition to greater things. Um, and that, so, yes, so we never find out because I don't think it's supposed to be important. It's meaningless. They're they're if they're completely indistinguishable, what does it matter? But we never find out which one is the original Toko, which one is the quote unquote puppet Toko. For all we know, the original Toko is fucking dead as shit, and we are with a like different puppet version of Toko that just has the same memories um, and and is identical in every other way. But it you know it's that kind of like philosophical concept. Um, but I love it. Toko is like one of those badass characters in any of this stuff. Uh, this is like the big moment for me with her is like, you can, you can rip her fucking heart out. You can destroy her heart. You can rip her fucking head off and you still can't kill her. Cause she's just going to come back anyway. And it's not like a, you know, time travel nonsense or she didn't, it's not an illusion. She just, she has a, she's a fucking video game character. She just has a second life. <laughs> it's like it's like too bad guys it's like you only he's like i got a one up uh i got a thousand points a few days ago it's like you fucked up because now i can just show up and, and ruin your shit what if this is how the super mario movie represents that concept is you have mario gets <laughs> fucking ripped apart by bowser in one scene and luigi's on the ground crying and bowser crushes mario's head that he ripped off the body and then mario comes back in and says it's a me i had a perfect clone that'd be great yes I made a puppet of... I made a puppet of myself. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I love it. And I... 
it's like this is the kind of concept that you could devote several two-hour movies to on its own, right? And it's it's just one small part of this film, right? Um, and it's something that you know we we're we're spending more time talking about it than the movie spends dwelling on the metaphysics of it, uh-huh. right? It's a very simple explanation. Like you learn earlier that Toko her like magic ability was puppets and the manipulation of puppets. And that's the thing she was so good at. And at the point where you have created a perfect identical clone of yourself, like there are no more puppets to make, right? She has Uh done whatever the top ambition was. She has done it. She has, it's, it's like if you were a doctor and you solved all forms of cancer, you know, it's like, well, I did it. I beat medicine. You know, it's like she did the thing. Um, And so now you have this and the movie just kind of moves on from that idea. As you say, I hadn't even really thought of the idea, Sean, of like which one's the original and which one isn't. And I love that the movie doesn't even invite discussion of that. It is just Mm -hmm. here they are. And of course the reason it works so well is because this is so a movie about duality. This is the idea is everywhere. It is the yin yang. It is the idea of a paradox is the idea of a spiral is the idea of a cycle. It is the idea that like, the the introduction of the plot point that she has lived because she cloned herself is through a series of shots that are identical repetitions of shots you saw earlier, which when you see freak you out because they are so deja vu, you know, it's, um, yeah. And as, and as you were explaining it, it's not even that simple because we actually, it's not quite repetitions. It's like we caught back up to the initial shots that we saw because the edit is so complicated. Yes. Um, yeah, it, it's like, I mean, it's like a 30 minute something stretch of the movie before you get back around to that brief yes. thing you saw where it's like, was that was that Kokto on the ground? Bloody like what the fuck was that like brief thing you saw? And then you've got to if you're, you know, watching. I mean, obviously, I knew this stuff. But if you're watching it for the first time, you notice that like you got to hold that in your brain for like 30 minutes before it comes back up again. But it's part of the whole you know, because that's just, that's not the only time they do something like that. That's like in every other scene, there's a detail like that that is slightly out of place because it is a different version of that scene that has happened either later or earlier than what you think you're supposed to be in the timeline. Um, while we're on Toko, I do also want to bring it because you have the screenshot and it's an amazing moment where she um, says, uh, I she as she kills Elba, she says, I've made it a rule that I have annihilated everyone who kill, called me the disgraced Scarlet. Yes. Um, and, and I love, even like the word annihilated honestly doesn't even get across. She uses, uh, she says, buchi korosu in Japanese, which is like basically... You could, you would be fairly well justified. You could make a clear argument for translating that line as like, I fucking murdered everyone who called me the disgrace Scarlet. <laughs> um, that's like, it's like, Buchi Kodosu is such a kind of vulgar word. Um, and uh, I, I love it. Again, it's so suggestive that that's like, that's the person that she was before she let go of all these things. She was this much more cruel, much more unforgiving, um, much harsher person before all this stuff and before her letting go and her living this life that she now has. Um, and, you know, they, they went just a little bit too far and they, they poked the nest a few too many times and like, and this is what comes out. And I love that, you know, Soren clearly knew that all this was up because he, he <laughs> you know, because the scene that sets up that line is that Alba says that when in the room with the decapitated Toko head um, and he like uses that nickname. And Soren's just like, Oh, uh, you should have said that. <laughs> Basically, it's like, oh, you really should have said that. It's like, you can take the head, man. It's yours. Like, you can do whatever the fuck you want with it, but 
you shouldn't have said that shit. It like Soren clearly knows that probably Alba's gonna get murdered, but he's just like, okay, <laughs> like you take that head. Like it's what you said you wanted. It's why you helped me out with this thing. You can have the head. I'm gonna do it to my shit. Like, but you really shouldn't have said that shit, man. It's uh, it's fucking great. Another Toki moment, uh, and Toko, sorry, to- Toko moment that we can move on, and we can move on after this is she has this scene where she's talking to Soren, and this is actually this precedes right after this is when she gets stabbed through yes. the heart. Um, but she gives her three laws of monsters. I like to think of this as this is our uh, corollary to Asimov's three laws of robotics is yes. Toko's three laws of terror. She says, Araya, there are three elements that terrorize people. Do you know them? One, a monster should not talk. Two, a monster's identity should never be revealed. Three, a monster is meaningless if it is not immortal. I love that. I feel like someone should build like a, a literature class about monster horror uh, around Toko's three laws and see if it holds. Because I think it sounds pretty smart to me. Yes, um, because, yeah, it's like this the whole thing of like, if it is knowable, it can be killed. Um, I think it's like it also I think it kind of connects to li- like Shiki's whole thing with the mystic eyes of death perception is like if you're a thing that she can identify and understand and conceptualize as being like alive in a thing like an entity um you are something that can be killed by her um and so it's like as he becomes more humanized in his existence he becomes more vulnerable um and like if he's talking if like he's out there and his and everybody knows who he is, like he is making himself more and more vulnerable. And if like if he wants to be a true monster, he needs to be like totally closed off and alien and like inscrutable. And then perhaps he would be able to survive an encounter with Shiki. But it's like at this point, I think Toko knows very well of like this dude's fucked. Like there's no way he's 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 given away too much already at this point that eventually Shiki's gonna get to him. And uh, Shiki gets to him well and good. And I love in this final moment when (laughs) Toko realizes that Shiki is coming, basically. And she acts like the Mm -hmm. greatest hype man in the history of, you know, wrestling or pro sports or something. Of, like, hyping up the appearance of Shiki. Including, I think, one of the most badass lines in the entire series where she says, We, the Magi, are threats to logic. But Shiki is the grim reaper to non-logic. That is a fucking phenomenal line. Yes, because it's like, because then after that, she says, like, you would have been better off, like, caging her in a, like, a cage of concrete. Um, Because what he's done is, like, he's, like, you know, magically imprisoned her in, like, a different space, right? He's created some sort of, like, magical boundary that in other space or dimension or something that she's trapped in um, using magic, which for any normal person, that would be the most surefire way to keep them in prison. But because she is Shiki and she has her capacity, she can cut anything if she can conceptualize it as a thing that has is finite. Um, her ability to destroy magic is something that like nobody else can do it as well as she can, right? She, she can cut through non-logic or like unreality um, which is something that nobody else can do. So if he had made it a concrete prison, it would have been harder for her to escape. But because he's a mage and because he thinks in those terms and he thinks that his advantage over people is the like abstract and the conceptual and the magical and the fantastical, that's what he uses. It's like that is the wrong approach with Shiki. That is the exact things that she can destroy. And it's I also love the idea that you know, Enjo goes into the building with the goal of he's going to get the sword to Shiki. And the initial yeah. idea by Kokto is that she's in room 410. You're going to go there. You're going to give her the sword. And Enjo even has this kind of realization of, I don't, 
I don't have to physically go there. I've brought the sword far enough. And he does his final mm-hmm. thing and and sacrifices himself. And then Shiki just, you know, appears and, and has the sword. And it's just such a great series of images. And then you get the absolute craziest thing that UFO Table has produced thus far, you know, in their in their time as a studio, which is this final fight. Yeah, well, before the final fight, you get, I think it's the thing we alluded to earlier, you get this interesting montage that's yes. from effectively Shiki's perspective where she has some kind of moment of revelation that like I interpret as like, I'd say like two things. One, that in the metaphysics of this specific fantasy setting, like she has like, brushed up against the root in some way, right? Like, it's the reason why she's there. Her mystic eyes of death perception, right? The whole thing that that Soren's trying to do is that her mystic eyes of death perception gives her a closeness to the root because death is an absolute. It exists in all things. She's able to perceive and touch the, like, manifestation, the conceptual manifestation of death. That brings her close to the root, and that's what he's trying to use. He's trying to occupy her body, um... Also then, like, combining a yin and yang, a male and female, all that kind of stuff, um, in order to reach the root. Um, and so I think that that moment where she, you get the movie played in fast forward, basically, but in chronological order, is her touching the root and having this, like, epiphany of all these moments, even ones that she was not present for, for that she's able to see. But I think it also represents, in the yin-yang sense, her momentarily either becoming or again like maybe brushing up against the taiji or the taikyoku or what they translate here as the supreme ultimate which is the yin yang as a as a whole right like the yin and yang symbol is not a symbol of two things it is one unified symbol of these two things in balance that is one great unified whole that is the supreme quote unquote the supreme ultimate as they say here that is what shiki is meant to be that is part of her dual personalities, all that kind of stuff. She's meant to be someone who becomes this thing. I think this is like her brushing up against that moment and being able to create meaning out of the disordered chaos we have gotten so far. And that is what like precedes her manifesting there. And I think gender is a big part to talk about here too. Yes. Because this movie does come back to the gender conversations in several places. Um, you know, uh, uh, Tomoe Enjo mentions it several times. And then there's this scene between Toko and Kokto in the middle of the movie where, uh, you know, Toko says, you love her regardless of her gender. And he says, yeah, I guess I do. And Toko asks directly, would you care if Shiki was male? And Shiki or Toko or uh, Kokto thinks about it and says, well, I'd prefer female but it's fine then. It's it doesn't matter. Um, and Toko is thinking that well, she's already kind of combined because she's female in the body, but speaks masculine to make up for the dead Shiki, the the other personality, the male you know personality. And part of Enjo's whole plan is, or not Enjo's whole plan, Soren's whole plan, as you were talking about, Sean, is the he's male, she's female. This will create a yin yang. But part of why that plan will never work is she's already that yin yang. And I feel yes. like in that moment and when she comes back into being at the end of this movie, it is this symbolic completeness of there has been this kind of like, you know, she came into some understanding of it in movie four when she gets out of the coma and gets the powers and all that stuff and starts adopting, you know, the the male shiki speaking style and whatnot. But there is still this sort of like, 
where where is she going to land on this sort of spectrum? And where she lands is like in this middle position where she is both things in one, comfortably so. And, you know, she even comes out in a different like colored kimono than she had had yes. before, which is obviously notable. Um, and yeah, and this is where, again, it just feels the normal he, she pronouns feel completely inadequate for discussing this. Um, but it's part of what makes it so compelling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's again, this is like part of the duality thing that has been a motif across all of the movies. Obviously, the yin yang thing has been in all the movies. Um, it's one of the main motifs of the whole series. And it's, you know, and we're obviously we're still not done with it because we've got two other movies to go. Um, but it like it, it does reach a big climax here where I don't think, you know, partially this is because I know where some things go. Like, you know, Sheik is not fully settled there yet, but she's like touched it. Right. She's she hasn't, you know, it fully accessed the root. She hasn't seen all of the knowledge and whatever of like all of existence and everything that has been and ever will be. But she brushed up against it to see this moment, this sequence, this year, whatever it is, how much time and see it in its totality and understand it in its totality and be able to see the like perversion in this like gut way of what Soren is. Right. She says this line I love when she gets the sword and she stumbles towards him. Um, that's like, I don't, it's weird. because it, She says, it's weird. Um, I should be excited because I know I'm going to be able to like fight you at like at the, in the most extreme way, like, like push myself to the absolute limits and fighting you. But all I am obsessed with now or I'm filled with is this like, I cannot tolerate your existence. Is yes. Basically what she says. It's not that I want to kill you. It's that I cannot tolerate your existence. Um, and that she takes no pleasure in it anymore. She's not having fun killing him. It's that she just can't permit him to exist anymore because he is a perversion in reality and must be, like, snuffed out effectively. It's unbelievable. It's so good. And then, of course, the action sequence that follows, we've already talked about it, but the way the camera goes into the animation is just a, a cut above even what we've seen so far, even earlier in this movie, and uh, blew my fucking mind away. Yeah, there's a fascinating sequence in the middle of it where the camera like moves in literally like physically between the two characters yes. and is like spinning like it's on in a spiral effectively between the two characters and like almost like like going upside down and stuff and shifting its perspective on them. That is like a shot I've never seen in anything else before. I mean, it's something that with an actual real world physical camera would be impossible to do um, without it being fucking smacked and broken by the actors. It's like you would be able to fit it in there. Um, and so it's like taking advantage of this 3D camera. Um, and this is the shot that is, I've seen like the animatics for and know that they like conceptualized it and prototyped it with 3D models that then was used as reference to the 2D animators um, because it's like such a complex camera movement. Um, and it's the most experimental they've been with the, any of that kind of stuff in the movies we've seen so far. So it is essentially hand-drawn images, but having been... but taking as their model, almost like in a rotoscope kind of sense, this 3D modeled animatic that they did. Yeah, more or less. And and the background is a 3D background, yeah. right? So like what we've seen in other places here, like the rooftop in movie one and later in Kimetsu no Yaiba, where they like to use the 3D backgrounds because it makes the animation a lot easier because you don't have to try to redraw the background for the different camera angles. But there, but even in this, they, they've, 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 I think even stepped up from some other moments in Kara no Kyokai where the background, they yes. finished it with hand-drawn image and like the way it's mm -hmm. like yeah. m melding background art um, with the 3D model, it, the illusion of it all being like planar 2D images that have like 
come to life somehow is is so totalized here in a way that reminds me yes. of like Kimetsu no Yaiba episode 19 when Tanjiro achieves the you know Hinokami Kagura and just jumps into motion and your jaw drops because it doesn't feel like we've put one animation style down and picked up another which is what you would often get it's like that one animation style leapt into a kind of motion that it shouldn't have been capable of right yeah yeah there's like it's it feels like a magic trick yes um and it's like and it's interesting that like every time they do it, it still feels like a magic trick when you have seen it a thousand times it still feels like a magic trick um and yeah and then the first time they've done it here effectively the first time it still has that magic trick quality to it of where you're just like the fuck do you do this like how do you like how do you conceptualize this how do you execute this like everything about how it comes to life is just crazy so can we do a deep dive on the final scene of this movie because it's my yes. favorite scene in Kara no Kyokai so far. Yeah. I mean, it's one of my favorite endings to any movie I've ever seen. Um, yeah. that, that's been true forever since the first time I watched it. Um, the, the dream that uh, the thing we under, come to realize is this dream that she has of this um, symmetrical uh, cafe with her and Enjo there sitting back to back, them getting up to leave as the music swells um, and then her getting shocked awake by the sound of like the knocking on the door that we know is must be Kokto, um, her saying he's a wimp, and then hearing the sound of the the key like moving in the lock and the door becoming unlocked and opening, and her sitting up awake and it smashing to black. It's just a perfect movie ending. It, everything that is amazing about the movie and its themes and its ideas and its motifs is all encapsulated, I think, in those last like three minutes. Yeah, I just want to go through the succession of shots because it is so, and I have them all here in the screenshot folder, Sean, mm -hmm. but it is so perfect. You start with this shot of the big, you know, circular building, the the Paradox Mansion, yeah, with, you know, it is glowing orange with all the other lights of the city and there's snow falling down. And then you cut to uh, uh, Toki, Toko taking a drag from her cigarette. You have the smoke the from cigarettes, her cigarette. The cigarettes, by the way... This is a detail I didn't notice the first time I watched the movie. Those are the cigarettes that Coke, that she, the first Toko gave Kokto those cigarettes yes. as like a lucky charm that then she pulls from his <laughs> jacket pocket. Yes. So those are like the ones that she gave, the first one of her gave to Kokto that now the second one of her took him took from him when he was unconscious. I don't think I ever noticed that detail before. And that is like incredibly funny to me that she is like, through him as a middleman has passed herself her own packet of cigarettes and they're the yin yang cigarettes they have the word yes. fate on them they have yeah it's 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 symbolic you could say yes but yes it's very good so you have her taking a drag you cut to a reverse shot of her holding the cigarette the smoke billows up we pan up and you have the smoke cutting through the snow at night beautiful beautiful shot which then graphic matches to the uh, you're in this cafe and you have a close up on the tea and the steam is rising out of the tea and it's a perfect graphic match to the smoke rising. But now we are in this like otherworldly liminal space cafe. This even this first shot is like a good you know dual split down the middle image because you have the tea in the middle, you have a menu behind it, you have honey on the left, you have a coffee pot on the right. So this perfect rule of thirds kind of image. Then you cut to you have. Uh, a Shiki in one booth, you have Tomoe in the other booth, their backs are to each other, you have the booth down the exact middle line of the shot, so again, these perfect symmetries, their, uh, you know, backs are to each other, then you have this this incredible long shot where you're at the other end of the cafe, and there's this line going down the cafe, and it's perfectly, you realize it's not 
a cafe that they're split across, it's like the same cafe in a mirror, basically. Because you even yes. have this one patron who at the front is just mirrored, like it's almost like a Rorschach kind of image, you know, just unfolded mm-hmm. at the middle. Uh, and then you go back in close and you have a shot right on Shiki as she looks out the window and she sees this shadowy figure beckoning almost like an afterlife or like beckoning you back to life or to the afterlife or something. Um, and then go back and you're on Shiki and you see Tomoe start to rise. And then you look in the other direction and there's another figure with the opposite arm raised. So another shadowy figure beckoning him. And then there is this moment of recognition where he's going to leave. And then you go back to that long shot of the whole cafe in parallel. They both stand up. They're going in opposite directions. You have then this shot where like the spatial dimensions of the scene are kind of like broken at this point, which is so perfect where they're in this like white space. They both have a door in front of them. You're cutting back and forth uh, on like front facing shots of them. And they both are going to enter their doors. They turn to see each other. They have this final exchange of smiles to each other. And then it is this incredible, experimental avant-garde image of you just have the these two parts that are like it's almost like a split screen effect but there's no like blank space between them you just have the two images of each of them with their hand reaching out for a doorknob and their like wrists match up and so it is this again this like rorschach image where you have the same thing at the center coming out and like unfolding and it's each of them turning the knob and as they turn the knob shiki wakes up which is one of the first shots in the entire movie is when you Mm -hmm. have Kokto taking his driving lessons and he puts the key in the ignition and that key in the ignition becomes the key in the lock which wakes up Shiki which we now come back to as the final image of the movie and as you say Sean um, she says the line and then door opens and and we know he's coming in and we cut to black and we get an amazing Kalafina song and yes, yes one of the best endings to a movie ever uh, unbelievable it's amazing yeah because also this is where you get this incredibly haunting version of the main yes. um shiki theme that plays over this and it's like it particularly it starts to swell when they both get up and stand to walk to their respective doors um and they start walking in slow motion because like the theme the ethereal music like demands it um so everything slows down um there's one shot that you or like sequence of shots you don't have here that is in your screenshots is that they both they both turn to look at each other um and then they turn back, put their like hand up in a like over the shoulder, like I'll see you later kind of thing. Um, and, you know, and it's all like Injo, you know, does that first. Like he like she turns around to look at him. He looks back at her. He, he turns back and throws his hand up. She turns back and throws her hand up. They both go to the doors um, like in this like mutual recognition in this like parting of ways that then you're and then like you're just ripped out of that moment as she is when she wakes up right because the music swells but isn't like swelling to a quiet moment or something it feels like it's going to climax as the doors are going to open and you are like jartled out of that dream like state by the same thing that is jartling uh shiki awake in her apartment um it's just there's something so perfect about the whole sequence and i think there's so many different ways that you can read what is happening here um because i think there are you can read two things in this shiki you can e- you can read either that this is our shiki and she is saying goodbye to enjo i think you can also read this as being the dead shiki um that they are both like either like this is a shiki that is living that is choosing to go back to the land of the living um and as enjo goes in this opposite direction to the land of the dead or this is you know both of these ghosts um, both going off the land of the dead. I think both are like kind of legitimate. I've seen both 
as legitimate interpretations, partially because she's wearing, slash he arguably is wearing this red kimono um, that is a different kimono that you typically wear, she, see Shiki wearing. Um, I think that's what I've seen people say, see that this is the male one. Um, but I I very much interpret this usually as the, this is the female Shiki. This is like a parting, you know, in like at the boundary, right? Like literally at the boundary of nothingness. He is going to one end, she is going to the other because they are opposites, right? Um, Enjo is a person who was like alive, living in a dead body for the whole movie, right? He was like alive on the inside. He was animated by this like need to live, this drive to live, a drive so intense that he killed his mother. And one of these cycles, he killed his mother because he needed to live so bad. Um, he couldn't die one more time, but he's in a dead, he's in a corpse the whole time. Whereas Shiki is a person who is alive on the outside, is in a living body, but is dead inside or has been dead inside. And she's trying to find a meaning. She's trying to find something to live for. And so they are mirror reflections of both of them are represent both sides, right? The one of, you know, yin and yang is many dualities. It's not just good and evil. I think that's the thing that gets like simplified so much when it gets talked about, particularly in like a American context is people just think like, oh, yin is good, yang is bad. It's like white and black in that way. That's like, it's, it's supposed to be that all things or most things exist in a state of dualities. It is male and female. It's open and closed. It's life and death. It's not just good and evil. Um, and that they both are like, exist on that boundary between these two states of the yin and the yang. Um, and both of them have to like, choose to go fully over in this moment to one side or the other. She has to choose life, has to go to, you know, choose actively to like be alive. And that's when Kokto is able to come back into her life and kind of fill that hole that was in her for the whole movie. And Injo has no choice because, you know, he has spent himself. He must now go off to the land of the dead. Um, I think it's just like this, this scene has always just hit me very hard because I think it, it encapsulates so much of like the ideas about like what it means to like live with death and have like death be a part of your life. That is, you know, that theme that is throughout all of Kata no Kyokai. I think it really sort of like culminates in this very poetic moment here. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I have much to add to that because that is my reading, but you know, you have even more perspective on this to give and, but that's totally what I felt is that it is, they are going to different places, one back to the world of the living, one to the world of the dead, but they are similar journeys. They are mirror journeys. Uh -huh. They are, you know, they are, in some sense, if you, you know, this movie has introduced the idea of, of the root, the, the vortex, but no, the root, right? Yeah. And they're both in their own ways going back to it, right? Like these are yes. both ways to, to access and to, to come to it. Death is maybe the ultimate way of rejoining that, but also Shiki going out and living and continuing to strive is also that. And I think in some sense, if, and, and you know, with the way this movie is built duality and with a very, that much more fulsome understanding of yin yang, as you're saying, Sean, it is the same movement. It is the same motion, even if it is to what we think of as very disparate places, life and death as opposites. Well, life only has meaning because of death and death only has meaning because of life. And so this is a very real illustration of that. And, you know, it, every one of these movies to some degree is about, you know, how Shiki is touched by the encounter with 
the character or the person, the person, the victim at the center of the case or whatever in that movie, you know, in the first movie and the third mm-hmm. movie, it's the person in the case. In the second movie, it's Kokto. In the fourth movie, it's sort of herself. Right. Um, and in this one, it's, it's uh, Tomoe. But this is the most profound version of that because you have this sense of her awakening back to the world, deeply touched by this. And then of course, if she's going to go back and actually live in this living body, What's the first thing that happens? What's the thing that calls her back? It's Kokto coming. And of course, in the post credit scene, she gives him the key, or she asks for the key. And I think my reading that UFO Table choosing to start their adaptation in episode one with that first scene of Kokto trying to get her out of his shell, her out of her shell with the little gift of ice cream being a little synecdoche for the whole series. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that reading is holding up as I'm going further into this yes. series because that is what the series is about to some extent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like and just like that power of of like the key and the lock as a symbol, right? That like I like cuz I like the movie turns I think you're like sort of conventional logic on its head that like usually that as a symbol is a is like a negative one. It's about like keeping people out, you know? It's like locked doors prevent people from coming in. But I like what it's like here. It's about like no, locked doors are about letting people in and then and then like keeping them safe there you know um it's it's about like you choose who gets to come into your life and you choose like that they get to be there um that you get and that you live with them and you choose the people who are your family right the people who are your family are the people that have the key to where you live um i think there's something so beautiful about that message that again is very different how i think like locks and keys and doors feel like they're usually used in these kinds of things um and there's there's the amount of intimacy, as we talked about earlier in the post credit scene, the amount of intimacy there is in this idea of giving a key to someone. Um, that Obviously, in the real world, also is like an intimate thing, but it's given so much weight and so much power here because of the journey we've been on with Enjo Tomoe and like what all that meant to him. Um, I mean, the thing that brings them together at the beginning of the movie is that while he's running away from the bullies or whatever... Um, he bumps into her in the alleyway, dropping his key on the ground. And then like he just keeps running, not realizing that his key is dropped to the ground. And Shiki picks it up and she goes and finds him to give him his key back. And that's like why she goes into that weird like parking garage thingy to get and encounters like the whole fight. Um, and so that the imagery of the key and the idea of the key is the thing that has permeated the whole movie. It is what brought our two characters together. It's like effectively the inciting incident. Um, for Shiki entering the plot of the film. Which also pushes um, back against what Soren says to Tomoe, which where he says, yes. I even created your desire to be with Shiki, all of that. That's complete. That's false. That's false. It was this yes. little moment of chance that brought these two people together through the key. Yes. Yeah. It's either chance or if you want to like the spiritual side of it would be it's the counterforce or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's like the world is pushing these people together because they need each other and like them being together will like save the world will like save these things um and i think both of those however however like wherever your spiritual leanings are you can read either one of those it's either happenstance or it is like fated in some way um but yes uh it, as you say it is a thing where soren is wrong and like and basically toko that's part of what toko is saying that to him of like all this failed because he escaped i think is is also telling us like you no know, soren didn't really either he maybe he thought he implanted that thing and maybe he thought that that was like part of his old strategy but that's not really what happened here um that that he that injo did escape 
on his own. That like he did just break that cycle because he couldn't die one more time um, because he loved himself and his family too much. And and that's what drove him out of there. And then he happened to hit Nishiki or he was fated to encounter her to bring all of this about to happen. This is this is such a good fucking movie, Sean. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. And we've talked about it for two yeah. and a half hours, and I and I like it even more the more we break it down, which is the ultimate mark of a great movie. Um, did you know there's a 13-episode TV edit of The Garden of Sinners that one of the ways they got it down to 13 episodes yes. is they just cut this movie entirely? What the fuck is the point of doing any version of Kara no Kyokai where you don't do this? Yeah, I've never seen any of the TV edit. I don't, I've never heard it being held in any sort of regard whatsoever. Because I think that happened in like also the it was part of it was like the build up to them doing the eighth movie and stuff. Right. Um, it's it was essentially a promotional thing. They reconstructed the story yeah. chronologically, uh, and then they cut chapters five and six. Um, but it's just so funny because it's like that is. I, you know, I could see them re-editing this into a TV thing. I don't think it would be the best version of it, but crazier things have happened. But this is, like, so clearly the heart of the story, even having not seen the last two chapters. Yes. I just think it's like, you know, again, I, at the end of this, there was a part of me that just felt like, oh, man, what more is there left to say? And then, you know, the intellectual part comes in, and then it's, well, there's the whole serial killer thing. <laughs> there's you know, all this other stuff. Um, and I'm excited to see it, and I'm sure it's going to be great. But it does feel like, especially with how poetic that final scene is, it's like, boy, it feels like they said everything. That's how good this is. Well, I I found an interview with Nasu where he talked about when he, this is for obviously him writing the novels, um, but like one of his original sort of ideas was that this everything that is the plot of this movie would have been combined with lots of the plot elements of what is the seventh story or whatever. Um, that would be the ending. Cause he had the idea that Soren is like the ultimate bad guy. He's the one who sets into motion the first story, the third story, and you know, he, elements of what happens at the seventh story connected to things that happened in the second story that you didn't realize are also connected to things related to Soren. So it's like, the idea was that he was he's like the big mastermind villain. He's like the big, big bad guy. And so he was going to have him be the main villain of the last story and like tie up all the serial killer stuff and all that there. And he realized it was like too much. It was too busy. And that was actually more interesting to like separate that out, do it this way to have this be this like kind of big climax and then have space to deal with like the a kind of fallout and a little bit of a denouement structure and move the serial killer stuff to have like a smaller thing. Um, for the seventh chapter or whatever. Um, and so if this feels like it's like a climax or culmination, it's like kind of designed to be. Um, and yeah, it is weird to imagine a version of the story that then cuts this out because it's like this is effectively the ending in some ways. Um, in like a more traditional way, this is like the quote unquote ending of the story because the ultimate big mastermind antagonist has effectively been dealt with. But there are like still things to deal with after that um and i think that's one of the things that's fun with cardinal kyokai's episodic structure is that i think it like gives it space to do that whereas if it was not you know if it was a more traditional novel structure with one big overarching seamless plot i think that would be a little bit of an awkward thing to do um but i think because you have this episodic structure it means like yeah we can have like a kind of another adventure monster of the week kind of thing which is movie six and then you get your like full wrap up in movie seven and kind of finish, finish it out. And then we get like 
our birthday cake or whatever. It's like our extra little present, which is what the eighth movie is, because that's like a thing they made after all of that, which is just gets to be fun too. Um, so it's a it's an interesting structure, but this is effectively the climax of the story. And a hell of a climax it is. I am very excited to watch movies six and seven and see how this thing ends. And that is what we will be covering on the next episode of Japan Animation Station. I cannot, cannot wait to record that. Yes. Um, and just like to, to say it again. Uh, so, yeah, episode six and seven will be for the next episode of the podcast. And then the one after that will be movie eight, along with all of the other extra shit. And basically all of it is on Crunchyroll. As far as I, I looked at Crunchyroll, I think it's all there. Um, so all the other, like, here's like a little 30-minute epilogue or whatever, like all those things, we're going to cover that together with the eighth movie because most of those things are made around with the eighth movie as well. Um, so next time will be six and seven. After that will be movie eight and all the extra stuff. Wonderful. I am I am very excited to see what happens next. Yes, it is. We still got a lot of good ahead of us. Japan Animation Station